tell you about my suit first. Maybe you care about that. Maybe you don't. The first thing you need to know is these are tiny Elon Musk heads. And uh, this is a Twitter suit. In the lining here, there's a bunch of comments from Twitter about another suit this company made for me. It's God. God is that which calls you to make the appropriate sacrifices and calls you on it when you don't. And try to escape that and see what happens. We know perfectly well, perfectly well, that that's a pathway to hell. And you might say, I don't believe in hell. And I would say, that means you don't know anything. First thing you need to know is this is a Twitter suit. In the lining here, there's a bunch of comments from Twitter about another suit. These are tiny Elon Musk heads. <laughs> uh, Jake, I, I can't really see. Is that your Twitter suit? Yeah, yeah. This, these these are these are my tweets. Um, I think uh, the tiny Elon Musk heads might be uh, my personal version of hell. I don't know about you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would imagine that actually in hell there are literally tiny Elon Musk heads like just floating all over the air. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So I am Ben Burgess. Uh, this is Give Them an Argument. I'm joined by our trusty super producer, uh, Jake Appet. Um, our graphic designer, Jay Andrew World, uh, has some, some family stuff. He's not going to be here uh, this second, but uh, he might be joining us in the post game. Certainly, uh, Matt McManus, uh, political science professor. A uh, frequent guest on the show, frequent co-author of mine, uh, definitely one of my top like ten Canadians, uh, is uh, is for sure going to be joining us on the post game where we are going to be talking to Curtis Yarvin, Matt, uh, talking about Curtis Yarvin, not talking to Curtis Yarvin. I've done that, wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but I have done it. Uh, but uh, in any case. Um, Matt is enough of a masochist uh, that he has read a tremendous amount of Curtis Yarvin for something he's writing for Commonweal. So he's going to share that with us uh, in the post game. We're also going to look at Ben Shapiro's new formula for uh, for for assessing uh, political legitimacy. Actually, do we have that graphic right now? Ben Shapiro's formula. I just, I just want to give the people a taste of uh, what they'll be getting in the post game. Uh, this is uh, this is something that apparently he's been hard at work at uh, in the uh, Daily Wire uh, laboratories, uh, coming up with this uh, this formula for assessing whether or not governments are legitimate. Uh, I don't want to spoil it, but uh, you can hear all about that in the uh, in the post game with Matt. But uh, before we get to the post game for give them an argument, patrons. If you're not a patron, by the way, that's uh, Patreon.com/slash Ben Burgess. There's no time like the present. Uh, but before we get to that in the main show, we have a pretty action packed program for the next little while. So, uh, we are going to be talking to, uh, professors Adnan Hussein and Harvey JK, uh, who are both, uh, returning champs, both historians, uh, and we're going to be talking about the Marxist theory of history, uh, after that, I'm uh, going to be playing some clips from a debate that I hosted on my call-in show between Glenn Greenwald and Branko Marchetich about what, uh, what, what Glenn calls the Bernie AOC left and his critique of that and, and why Branko uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't buy that. Uh, and uh, then we are going to, uh, to be talking about some, some interesting stuff uh, that uh, that's been happening on uh, social media in the last few days, uh, involving um, 
involving Jimmy Dore and why he thinks I'm a liar and a fraud and 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 uh, an egghead that was in there, an egghead, uh, and uh, and many many other bad things besides, and uh, why I have extended the invitation to uh, for him to come explain all these things to me uh, on here, uh, so we can have a nice calm in the weeds discussion about whether what he's saying makes sense and why he's uh, you know. He's opted for no. Nope, not going to do that. Um, so in any case, all that is uh, is coming up uh, later in uh, in the show. But what you just saw, of course, was friend of the show, Jordan Peterson. And uh, I have a question for Jake. So take all the time you want with this. Uh, it, it's not a complicated question, but is, is Jordan Peterson okay? <laughs> That's... Uh, you know, it's, uh, it seems like he's had different, uh, amounts of <laughs> okayness over the years. Uh, but, uh, I think that the, um, people were remarking that it seems like he's going into his evangelical, um, era and he always had that sort of, um, traveling street preacher energy, you know what I mean? So this is not, not really a surprise, but it just seems like there's a gravity toward, uh, insane evangelicalism uh that these right-wing guys have like i remember we were talking about the the fall of yiannopoulos where he was where he was hawking uh little christian figurines right on uh on like daytime tv so compared to that he's maybe okay but emotionally i'm not so sure yeah no that's that's true i mean i think that he's he's definitely okay in a sense that milo is not uh he's 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 not on the catholic fundamentalist home shopping network uh, hawking the uh, hawking the figurines. Uh, this is a lovely Virgin Mary, you know. Although it would be very funny to see Jordan Peterson uh, do that, but yeah, emotionally, I, I do. Uh, I do wonder. I will. I will. I will tastefully leave it there. Uh, but uh, we do want to move on uh, to another one of our uh, our good good friends here, uh, who is uh, Timothy Poole. Uh, who, uh, because we were talking about Timothy last time on uh, on the show and some of Timothy's thoughts about socialism and Marxism, and uh, since that segment, he's had some more. So let's uh, let's let's take a look. Uh, here's uh, here's what uh, here's what Tim Pool uh, tweeted about commies, or maybe just commies who go to college. Uh, I'm not sure. You be the judge. But he says college commies be all like, which you know. I just want to, um, I just want to pause and just appreciate that framing device. Uh, you know, college commies be like, uh, but you know, in any case, uh, we talked about that last time he, he, he set up, uh, he set up one of the other ones the same way, like this kind of like 1990s brick wall comedian thing, you know, that's, you know, white people be like, you know, that's, uh, but college commies be all like, I am forced to work a wage slave job. Otherwise, I will be homeless. And I'm just wondering what they think being alive is supposed to be like. Like, bro, go start a farm commune. Then tell me how many hours you have to work every day. So there's a lot to there's a lot to break down here. But what are you uh, you know what are your initial thoughts? Um, I mean, I, I think. Uh... It would be interesting to maybe talk to Tim about like what stage of capitalist uh, development that we're in, right? Uh, well, you know, whether uh, maybe there's, I see what he's saying that like in the ancient times, like maybe, you know, I'm not, 
I don't think most Marxists think that like at the dawn of, of human civilization, life is a cakewalk, right? Uh, and that's the alternative. Oh. But I think most Marxists, and correct me if I'm wrong, would say that there are, because of, you know, just where we're at generally, uh, there are options other than working 16 hours a day uh, on a, you know, in a commune on a farm or, you know, working uh, eight to 12 hours a day or however much you have to work for, for a capitalist in a factory or something like that. Yeah. I mean, so we're going to be talking uh, later tonight with uh, Harvey and Adnan about the Marxist theory of history, but sort of right at the, at the core of, of that theory of history is the idea that uh, the level of development of what Marx calls the forces of production, uh, the, the capacity of a society to, to make stuff, you know, what Marx says, you know, these ex- are exchanges with nature to, to meet human needs uh, that, you know, you take, you know, what you have in nature, the plants and animals and, you know, the wind in the air and all that stuff and find ways to, to get uh, products out of that, that, you know, that have use value for, for humans um, that the development of that over time is upstream of the kinds of uh, economic arrangements, what what Marx you know call the relations of production that you have at any given time, whether you have lords and serfs, you know, workers and capitalists, uh, whatever it is that you that you have, uh, and that you need to have you know feudalism before you can have capitalism. You need to have capitalism before you have socialism, and the whole idea is that by the time you know you get up to uh, the point of a really advanced capitalist society, it's developed the forces of production so much that you can have socialism without everybody just you know like going back to the land and you know and 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 like just starting their own little farm commune. You know the like the whole idea of Marxism as opposed to previous kinds of socialist thought is precisely no. I mean, that's not how it's going to work, right? What we need to do is, is take over this incredibly advanced industrial machine that's been created by capitalism. And then we could, um, and then because, you know, we live, you know, in high tech modernity, uh, we, we have the capacity to have a more egalitarian society. That's not just all of us, you know, working on the farm commune for 16 hours a day and sharing what few crumbs, you know, that we, uh, that we have there. Yeah. Yeah. Who would you say is like the main commune socialist pre Marx? I feel like, uh, there's like an American socialist on the tip of my tongue that are, there's a couple of commun- or socialists like pre Marx, right. Who are all about communes. Yeah. Like Owen uh, or, uh, yeah, Owen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. It seems like his, uh, you know, his objections are maybe like, um, I don't know now. Well, we have to do some math, but like 200, 250 years, more than 200 years late. Right. Uh, uh, he, he's responding to like a pre Marx socialist who just thinks that we should all create communes, uh, which could be better than the current system that we have. But uh, I think the Marxist alternative. Yeah. Is I mean, in some more- ways, uh, you know, but like, <laughs> you know, but yeah, Marx certainly understood. You're not going to ask people to, you know, to go back to that and get much by it, you know, that, uh, that you like to, I mean, obviously not Marx, this would be anachronistic, but I mean, like the sort of basic Marxist insight is like, yeah, I mean, that's, um, it's not like we're asking people to exchange a society of, uh, you know, I don't know, Netflix and, uh, uh, you know, and, and like microwavable food and all that stuff for, uh, for, for one where you just, you know, live on the land, and, uh, and, and, and work all day, every day. Uh, it's that we think that we can have high tech modernity in a more democratic and, and egalitarian way. 
uh, that would be better. Uh, and, and they would actually be going forward and they would make life better for most people, which, which really brings us me to the, the second part of the tweet. So if we, if we look at that again, he says here, um, you know, so, all right. So you're forced to work away, you know, college commies be all like, I'm forced to work a wage slave job. Otherwise I'd be homeless. I'm just wondering what they think being alive is supposed to be like. And this is such an amazing false dichotomy that, like the only possible way that you could be alive is to have a, a wage slave job. I mean, I assume that like trying my hardest to like interpret this charitably, uh, which is not easy, but I mean, like trying, it seems like what, you know, he has in mind is somebody who thinks, well, they should just be able to have consumption without having to work at all. That is that like, it, it should just, that nobody should have to work in any way that, you know, that you just, you just sort of have things magically appear before you or, or other people could work, but, you know, but, but you could just, you know, sit at home all day, every day, which by the way, right now is what we've got for some people, you know, if you, uh, if you live off stock ownership or you have inherited wealth or, you know, whatever, like those people literally do have that. But, um, but you can have, you know, you could say, look, I mean, maybe, in, you know, in some Star Trek future where we have replicators and stuff, then, then you really can completely delink, you know, work from consumption. Um, but you know, short of that kind of fully automated luxury communism utopia, here's something that life could be like. You could just have it be the case that uh, we have democracy in the economy the way that we do in politics, in a much more meaningful way than we currently do in politics. That uh, instead of having to you know, he says a wage slave job. Part of what that means is that, you know, even though obviously it's tremendous historical progress that under capitalism, rich people could only rent poor people, they, they can't buy them. Uh, it's still the case that there's this sort of structure of hierarchy and domination with no democratic accountability that you, uh, that, um, you know, if you work for Amazon, you don't get to decide okay, how much should we keep? And, you know, and, and do we think that, you know, the Jeff Bezos spaceship fund should, uh, should, you know, should take up a big chunk of, uh, of what we produce or not, you know, that the, that like what, how you work, you know, what you produce, how you, you know, how you divide up, you know, the product, all of these things are outside of people's control. And in fact, you know, if, you know, he's throwing this off as a rhetorical question, what do you think life could be like? It's like, oh, well, if we didn't have capitalism, then what is life even? You know, like, like what's the, you know, like, like how could it possibly be any other way? And it seems to me that if you actually wanted to know that, the first step might be to do a little bit of research about whether socialists have uh, have said anything about that or not. Which, spoiler, yeah, they have. Uh, so, uh, Karl Marx certainly uh, he. Um, he wrote this this classic pamphlet, uh, the critique of the Goethe program, uh, where um, you know he he says, well, you know, some some version of some of what I just said that well, to really advanced, uh, you know, the word he'd used was communism uh, for for this kind of future society he's imagined uh, back before it was you know that term was associated with the Soviet Union and all of that. But, you know, in a really advanced communist society where you don't have uh, – where, you know, there's been so much technological progress that you have superabundance and there's plenty to go around and, you know, people's cultural attitudes towards work has shift. Maybe you can completely delink consumption from, from, what, uh, from work that people uh, could just kind of give what they can and take what they need. 
but in a earlier phase of, of communist society, you would still have to have uh, to have to have some connection between those those two things uh, that you know that you're you know being rewarded with consumption in some way proportional to what you're putting in. But you know, workers would be collectively deciding how that worked. It wouldn't just be decided for them by people who happened to have the class position that they were you know in charge of these resources or you know that's a short pamphlet. If Tim really wanted to, um, you know, I think he actually does live on some, you know, I don't think it's a farm commune, but, you know, he, he lives in some kind of interesting compound. Andy was actually going to tell us about this next time he's on the show, he might. But uh, in, uh, but in any case, uh, if, you know, if, if Tim, you know, has a, has, a, has a room there with a nice comfy chair and he, he really wants to do some reading, he could check out uh, David Schweikart. Uh, wrote a book called uh, After Capitalism, which is a really detailed uh, examination of the sort of logistics of how a kind of real short-term realistic imaginable socialist society would work with like worker co-ops, you know, getting seed money from nationalized banks and, you know, what a lot of the logistics of that would be. And, you know, look, agree, disagree, but I mean, just sort of presenting this like, bro, what do you think life... You know what? Capitalism? I mean, what would life be even like if we didn't have capitalism? Yeah. Um, and isn't it uh, what Fisher's capitalist realist uh, idea that totally. <laughs> the pool is like uh, like playing out like a oaf right now, but just basically saying like an alternative to capitalism, no one, <laughs> uh, no, that surely can't be imagined, right? <laughs> like uh, just, you know, such a showing to what extent it just become this like hegemonic idea. Uh, I feel like for someone who um, to some extent fashions himself like a free thinker or against the, you know, raging against the machine, uh, at least the way he started, I, at least I, I've learned from some, you know, you and guests on this show that he was like at Occupy Wall Street and yeah. you know, saw himself as some kind of iconoclast that he literally cannot imagine any alternative to the system that we're currently in propped up, you know, by the uh, <laughs> elites we currently have that literally live the way that he is critiquing in his tweet, which is that they just sit back and don't do any work while, while, you know, other people do work and they, like you said, they collect, uh, they collect profit off of that. So I don't know. I saw someone say, Hey, you know, pool's just trolling with these tweets, but if he, if he's trolling to what end, you know, yeah, exactly. Um, and and he's certainly, you know, I mean, look, as always with guys like this, uh, whether he entirely believes what he's saying or not is maybe the least interesting question to me uh, because because he has an audience. He has a big audience, you know, and, and I want to know what they think is true based on the version of the world that he's giving them. And, you know, to to do whatever we can, you know, with our modest platform to uh, to push back against that. Um, okay. So thinking a little bit more about sort of general principles, you know, we've been talking about, okay, how a socialist society could actually work, why, you know, Tim is wrong to think that this is the only possible way that, that life could be, uh, that, you know, you have to have, you know, bosses and stock ownership and, you know, and all that stuff that that's, you know, that's all just etched into the fabric of reality. Um, but thinking a little bit more about general principles that are sort of underlying that, uh, I wanted to talk about something else I've written lately, do this for five to 10 minutes, and then we'll bring on uh, Harvey and Adnan. Uh, so 
thinking about, okay, so we could have something other than capitalism, but you know, why would we want that? You know, what, you know, like, like, what do we find so objectionable about the way that, you know, resources and economic power are distributed right now? One good starting point for that, from my perspective, uh, is to talk about Rawls. Uh, John Rawls uh, wrote a book called A Theory of Justice, uh, you know, which, which really revolutionized kind of late 20th century uh, political philosophy. Uh, and, uh, in, um, and so this is something that I've often brought up when talking to, uh, when talking to right-wingers. Uh, so that, um, you know, for example, here's from the debate that I did a year and change ago with Charles Kirk. But I want to zero in on this because I think we have a really interesting point philosophically. Yeah. Do you think if someone takes a risk in America, they should be able to keep the reward? Uh, not entirely, no. I mean, you don't think entirely. I mean, like the only way you could think entirely is if you were an anarchist and you didn't think that we should. But have- what are the limitations on that then? I mean, again, I think that the I think that the question that you want to ask, if you, if the question is, is some transfer of wealth justified? Because I think that's the real question, right? When are transfers of wealth justified? Uh, you know, and uh, it's and I think that you need to go back to what are the principles that justify what you think a distribution of wealth in the first place should be. Now, you could think that whatever kind of distribution you get, letting the chips fall where they made a free market, that that's what's justified. I don't think that. I think that uh, I think that the distribution of wealth that we have, and I, I think taxation and redistribution, even in the sort of market socialist you know system that I was advocating earlier, I think you'd still need those things. But I think that uh, the distribution of wealth that's justified is the one that would emerge from a social contract that people would uh, that people would agree to under certain circumstances. So. Uh, what, I guess it all comes down to numbers. I guess. Well, no. I mean, I mean, that's so. This, this, I mean, this, 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 this isn't a claim about numbers. This is a claim about basic moral principles. But I, 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 I think that the I think that the question is, if you were, you know, the best version of something like contract theory, if you were behind John Rawls's veil of ignorance, which I totally reject. Sure. I'm, and I'm I, I mean, of course, you totally reject it, Charlie. I'm, I'm happy to you, get into you, the Rawlsian. Theory you, you of justice. You but couldn't yes. believe any of the things that you believed if you didn't reject it. But I think that. But I actually, but, I'm, I'm going to ask if, you about the veil of ignorance. But, but, in a but, second, if, you're, but yeah. if you're asking about what I think, I don't think that there's some magic number that, like, oh, you can tax up to this, you can't tax up to that. I think that if you want to know whether a tax system is just, a generally a system of how property works is just, you should ask if you knew that you had to live in the society, but you didn't know who you're going to be in the society. Would you agree to it? And the same way that if you didn't know whether you're going to be black or white, you wouldn't agree to racial discrimination being part of the rules of your society. If you didn't know whether you're going to be born into a poor family or a rich one, if you didn't know whether you'd have the particular skills that help you climb up the educational or career ladders of the professional managerial class, if you didn't know any of those things, how would you want the rules of society to work? I'll have an, and I, I have an answer. And I think to that. that's going to be the answer that's going to tell you when redistribution of so wealth is justified. I would want the rules of society to value action over favoritism, hard work over complacency, family creation over licentiousness, right? Liberty and the pursuit of virtue. Those things are right and wrong, regardless of what veil of ignorance, if I would be born in a lower class or a higher class, those things are objectively good. So, and so, so to you, use Rawls' own so you know, talked, thought experiment. So you talked about, uh, so you talked about hard work there. 
Uh, yes. So if you're if industrious, if you yes. have a basic value to industriousness, if you have a basic objection to uh, people getting things that you don't work for, here are two things that you should be against. Okay. Inheritance and stock ownership. So in that in that clip, I'm talking about Rawls's theory of justice. Uh, Charlie, I think it's safe to say doesn't quite understand what the idea is because he said, well, I don't care what situation I'm in. Here are the things I value. It's like, yeah, but that's not the question. The question is, are we treating people unfairly? The test of whether we're trying to, we're treating people unfairly is if they were just trying to advance their own interests and they didn't know who they were going to be in this situation, would they sign off on it? Uh, but that last point about stock ownership and, um, and inherited wealth, uh, which, uh, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff that went on after that in the debate, but that last point, you know, really brings us to uh, a different philosopher, G.A. Cohen, uh, who you know we talked about in this show before. But his point about equality of opportunity—that ultimately, uh, they, you know, when we anytime you have a conception of equality of opportunity, we we're talking about this a little bit with with R.M. Brown, I think, at the post game last week, that. Any conception of equality of opportunity is a conception of which obstacles to some people getting better outcomes are unreasonable and you should try to get rid of them. So, you know, what Cohen uh, – so he, he wrote this book called Why Not Socialism, a very, very short book, uh, really strongly recommended. I talked about that book with RJ Esco on an old episode like, I don't know, a year or more ago. Time all blurs together. Uh, but uh, in that, you know, in that book, he says, well – Look, uh, you can have bourgeois quality of opportunity where you basically say the obstacles we want to get rid of are like legal ones, like um, regimes that say if you're born a serf, there's you're you're not going to be allowed to become a lord, or you know if if you're uh, you know if you're black, you're not allowed to do certain things because we might have racial apartheid laws or etc. Uh, so bourgeois quality of opportunity is about getting rid of that stuff, which is hugely important. Uh, but it only goes so far. There's a kind of intermediary kind that he talks about. Uh, but just to sort of skip ahead to to Cohen's own uh, idea about this, he says ultimately what we should want is socialist equality of opportunity. And what he means by socialist equality of opportunity is basically uh, what I said a few months after the Kirk clip uh, when I was on the Joe Rogan show at the beginning, uh, Joe asks – essentially uh, why I'm a socialist, what I mean by that, and this that we're about to watch is part of the answer. I mean, short term, I care very much about, you know, having, you know, socialized health care, about, uh, about having, you know, like tuition-free higher education so people can go to school without being having to be in debt for like decades, which is obscene. Obscene. Uh, I, I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah, I'm uh, with you 100% on both those things. You know, and um, – and I do think that like the le- the level of inequality that we get from our current system is indefensible. That in other words, uh, that if one person has more than another just because they like chose to work harder, then like that's one thing, right? I can you know like right. that you know I would you know person A wants to stay home and watch Netflix, and you know person B you know wants to work uh, for for more hours than like you know person you know person B should get more money. I am totally fine with that. But what bothers me is when you have these massive inequalities that have huge effects in people's lives that are linked to things that that aren't under their control. And I think we have a lot of that too. I would agree with you 100%. Yeah. So what 
I'm laying out there is essentially what uh, Gia Cohen, I don't name check him in the, uh, in the, in that part of the conversation uh, should have, should have get, get some, get some Rogan viewers to, to read why not socialism. But, uh, but it's essentially what Gia Cohen means by socialist quality of opportunity, which is that uh, essentially that a social system, a distribution of wealth is unjust to the extent, that, you know, or distribution of economic power is unjust to the extent that you have inequalities that are linked to factors be beyond the control of the people with the uh, the short end of the stick. Um, and anybody who knows a little bit about this stuff, you know, might think, well, okay, so in the first clip, you're agreeing with Rawls, second clip, you're agreeing with Cohen. But if you know a little bit more about both of these guys, you know, they did have some, some real disagreements. Uh, so uh, people know, I talked about this last week. I recently started a, a philosophy substack. Uh, it's called philosophy for the people because for a long time now, uh, I've wanted to make uh, philosophy writing a bigger part of my output. Uh, still going to, you know, keep writing for Jacobin and the Daily Beast and everything about you know day to day politics. But I wanted to do more of this kind of philosophical, theoretical kind of writing. So I started that. That's BenBurgess.substack.com. Uh, people can go check that out. Um, the first essay. It's going to be every Sunday. Uh, the first essay, which went up the first Sunday, was called Human Hell, which was about uh, David Hume. It was a deep dive on. David Hume's essays on suicide in the afterlife and the arguments he makes there with a little bit of reflection on the link between how to think about the history of philosophy and what I'm about to talk to Harvey Adnan about, which is the Marxist theory of history. Um, and then the one that came out yesterday uh, is um, is called Thinking Harder About Justice, uh, Rawls versus Cohen versus Marx. Uh, you can see J. Andrew World's beautiful artwork on uh, on, on both of those. And in there, try to think about, okay, uh, Rawls's um, difference principle, which is what he gets out of that veil of ignorance thought experiment I just talked about, and uh, G.A. Cohen's socialist uh, equality of opportunity principle, and if there's a conflict between them, is there really a conflict, or are these just sort of slightly different ways of talking or thinking about justice that you know that might ultimately mask some some deeper agreements, how those fit in with what uh, Karl Marx says about some of this stuff in the critique of the Gotha program, which we talked about earlier. So, people who want to know what I think about all that stuff can check out uh, the, uh, the 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 Substack essay, um, and uh, I'll I'll say just as a teaser for for next week, the next one is going to be about um, yeah probably the third most famous Slovenian. In the world, if uh, if the first, you know, if the most famous one is, is Melania Trump, uh, and uh, and the second most famous one is Luca, then you know we got then we've got uh, Slavoj at number three because uh, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of um, uh, discourse about him lately. Wanted to weigh in on a little bit, uh, not a little bit. Thought this would be a good. Uh, I thought this would be a good venue to do that. Uh, so again, do do go check that out. Uh, do do subscribe to that. Uh, so so you can uh, you can read all this stuff. Uh, you can also watch me talk about this stuff. I've been uh, talking about each of these essays on Sunday afternoons on This Is Revolution and cross-streamed onto this channel uh, with uh, Stefan Bertram Lee. Uh, so that's been at, at – uh, so the essays have been dropping at like uh, 11 a.m. Eastern on Sundays, and the conversations with Stefan about them have been at 4 Eastern on Sundays. Uh, so please do check all that stuff out. Uh, last thing, uh, my, uh, my, my co-host for this event would be very mad at me 
if I, I went this whole time and I didn't mention it. So last thing before we bring on Harvey and Adnan uh, is that we are uh, going to be doing a live show in New York City, uh, the Big Apple, uh, on uh, Sunday after next. So that is Sunday, January 22nd. That is a give them an argument slash this is revolution slash left reckoning live show uh, featuring uh, some people who I like a lot, who have all been multiple time guests on this show. Uh, that's Bhaskar Sankara, who's the founding editor of uh, Jacobin uh, Magazine, um, Sam Cedar uh, from the Majority Report, Emma Viglund from, I guess, also the Majority Report, but mostly the Emma Sports Viglund Network, uh, just her uh, her sports show. Uh, but I am uh, I'm really looking forward to that. I think it's going to be really good. Uh, we're probably going to get uh, one of the comedians in our world to, uh, to 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 open for us. We're still figuring that out. But after that, you know, once we we get a chance to talk to all those people I just mentioned, I think it should be a lot of fun. Uh, the one in L.A. that we did was fantastic, and I think in a lot of ways this could be even better. Also, uh, the in L.A. you didn't get to see Jake Abbott, and uh, I know that was that was a source of sadness for a lot of people. So you you get to see. You will get to see Jake in New York. Uh, we've got a link to uh, to get tickets uh, for uh, for that uh, in uh, down there below uh, the uh, the box uh, where you you see our heads right now where we're talking. Uh, so uh, please do do that. Uh, really looking forward to that show uh, next week. The guests on air next week are going to um, well. There's going to be Jason Miles uh, and also Sam Cedar is going to be on next week. So uh, get a little, you know, a little taste of, of it as we build up, uh, as we build up to the actual live show. So uh, really, really looking forward to that. But uh, with no further ado, it is time for tonight's, um, for tonight's uh, main, main, uh, main event, which is going to be uh, Professor Adnan Hussein, uh, back for the first time in a couple months uh and uh and uh professor harvey jk good evening how you doing okay not too bad i mean i i know it won't matter to you guys but packers lost last night under their (sighs) playoff possibilities and uh had to recover from that you know i mean it was a terrible season but it's still a matter of getting over the fact that the season's over over done yeah fair um so i should um yeah i mean look it doesn't matter to me from uh from that perspective uh but I w- oh looks like we lost ben um, yeah so i'm actually gonna be back in like 30 seconds you guys amuse yourselves okay, okay. i'm done how you doing Oh, I'm doing all right. It's great to see you, Harvey. How have you been besides, of course, the Packer trauma? Well, actually, it was a very strange sort of – Lorna and I, today we went out for a walk and we said – by the way, are people watching us as we have this conversation? They might be. They might be. <laughs> I'll just say – a good story. There was – well, there were really no holidays for us in this sense. We went to New York before, like a week before the Christmas period mm-hmm. to see our daughter and, and son-in-law. and. Within 24 hours after we got there, my daughter tested positive for COVID. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So we left 
with the idea that if we did get sick, let's at least be home when it hits us. So we right. came home and then we were just indoors through the cold of Wisconsin for mm-hmm. like all that stretch. I mean, we got out to walk and sh- stuff like that, but yeah, we both agreed that we had no, no holiday really. No, right. In the sense of capital H holiday. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, ben, you're muted. Oh, yeah. You uh, yeah. Might as well throw that in there too. Well, uh, while the rest of that stuff was going on. Uh, well, I do not care. Uh, uh, about the, the the Packers from a uh, from a fan perspective, but I do, uh, you know, it does, uh, you know. Look, I think that there's a sort of objective case. I don't, but there's a there's a there's an objective case that that's the socialists should uh, should all uh, <laughs> right. root for the Packers because because uh, right. they're the only only one that isn't owned by a wealthy parasite. Right. Uh, yeah. Working America's team. Good way of putting it. Yeah. The, the Dallas Cowboys used to claim to be America's team. So exactly. for a while, Packer t-shirts said something like the people's team. Was that kind mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. that kind of thing? Yeah. No, yeah. it makes sense. Uh, so I had, you know, so you were on before, um, you know, last, you know, late last year uh, to, uh, to talk about uh, your, uh, your book, uh, this book, uh, yeah. the, uh, the British Marxist historians, uh, uh, which, uh, was just recently reissued by zero books. People should, uh, people should go check that out. Uh, I know you've also had a conversation with Adnan, uh, about that on, uh, on his podcast. Um, uh, and I've also talked, uh, a little bit about related subjects to, uh, to, you know, with, with Adnan on the show, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that we, uh, we talked about a, uh, an essay that G.A. Cohen had written about Marxism and historical inevitability. And I thought it would just be really interesting to get you guys together to, uh, to, to talk, uh, talk a little bit about, you know, about stuff like this. So, I mean, one, you know, I mean, one way just to sort of generally, you know, start it off is like, um, you know, before even get into like what you think holds up about this and what doesn't and, you know, and, and how we should think about it now. I mean, when, you know, like, okay, the British Marxist historians, like, uh, you know, what, like uh, when you call a historian a Marxist, right. You know, like, like that means that they're, they're looking at history through a certain lens. So, I mean, let's, let's just start at that really basic level. I mean, what is that lens? Well, I mean, should I start? Should I start? Sure, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, Look, as I that question is interesting to me in the sense that over the course of the many years I've been an academic, an intellectual, mm-hmm. a leftist, a Marxist, Marxist, whatever, it's always been interesting how many people would say answer that question by saying, "Well, Marxists are just interested in class," and leave it yeah. at that. Okay, or the others who say, in other words, you think that all of history is determined mm-hmm. by economics, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that kind of thing. And and one of the things that I that really moved me about the British Marxist historians' work was that they were asking us, regardless of the period or, of British history that they were dealing with, or or for that matter, whatever uh, place in the world Hobsbawm got himself into to, to to work, they were asking us to consider, and I'll put this in terms a philosopher might appreciate. They were really asking us to consider the kind of the morality and justice question. That is. A good way of looking at it is this question of exploitation. To me, that that's 
a pivotal term in all of mm-hmm. this exploitation. And as we were, as I was sitting here earlier, I recalled something that my wife, I, I used to do this on, can I do this intro to sociology exams? Yeah. I, okay. I, um, I taught a lot of historical stuff, some political stuff, but I also have was for all, all the, of like 30 plus years, the instructor of the big intro sociology class. But one of the things that about my university was that it really was not built around disciplines. It was built around these sort of problem areas that mm. we all uh, worked on. And yet they still had these, these discipline introductory courses. So in sociology, I thought that I could just do what I wanted, basically. Mm-hmm. In fact, the joke was it was Harvey 101 in some ways. And and I wanted students I take to that class. <laughs> I wanted students to come at the, this idea of sociology, not unlike C. Wright Mills did. Mm. Okay. And C. Wright Mills was one of those people who, called, who wrote a book called The Plain Marxist. I think it was that was the title of the book, or at least the Marxist, and it was about plain Marxists. And, and he actually saw himself in that tradition, even though he really wasn't. Okay. Mm-hmm. But the point is that I was teaching this course and I came upon the work of an American, he was either an economist or economic historian, and he was dealing with how it was that the South um, developed not unlike a third, what we used to call a third world nation, and the North and the West somehow had broken out of, 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 of that kind of life in a more industrial and developing kind of way. But anyhow, as I was reading his, his work, I came across this really great quote, which I stuck on my introductory sociology course. In fact, I had students write about it in response to their reading of Domhoff's book, The Powers That Be. This is back in 1987. Uh, Barbara Garson's All the Live Long Day and Captain, and a book by Stuart Yu and Captains of Consciousness. And here was the quote. Class societies are not a product of nature. Considerable human effort and struggle is necessary to create and maintain a system in which some people do the work from which others derive the benefits. I figured that was a nice, plain, straightforward statement. My wife loved it, by the way. And she actually, at her, where she was working, which was the headquarters office of the, the largest non-labeled cheese company in America. It's a cheese company that provides the cheese for all the pizzas people eat around the country and the hamburgers with the cheese on top, that kind of stuff. And she stuck this in, on the front of her desk. And whenever somebody, even more, see, you know, one of her bosses or one of the senior people come by, they would always read this. And she would always get a kick out of the fact they would read that and they say, Yeah, I guess that's true. You know, it's as simple as that. So, you know, I think, you know, to me, one of the things that people said to me, Are you still a Marxist? And I'd say, Well, in some ways, how could you not be? How how could one not be? Okay, even if I didn't, I don't say I'm a Marxist, whereas once upon a time, I sort of bowed to that kind of term and said, yeah, I embraced it. But it is the case. How are we not compelled, okay, as as human beings to ask about how it is, okay, that we see around us exploitation, not just inequality, but exploitation, this idea of some people living off the work of others. Although I love it when some people have said to me, "Well, aren't aren't doesn't doesn't Bezos work? Didn't he work to create all this?" I mean, you know. And then I actually have to quote them Lincoln to get at the whole point of who creates value. I rather than go to Marx. Um, so I think to me, to be a Marxist historian is to ask about to start really by asking. So what's going on here? I mean, 
what kinds of social relationships, as Brenner, I think, put it, of extraction mm -hmm. are taking place here. Now, that I mean, that doesn't mean that everything necessarily, as we used to say, gets reduced to that, nor does it, nor does it mean that's the only thing worth looking at. But it is interesting to know how, it, with that at the core, what kinds of relations of oppression and, and, and for that matter, struggles of liberation take place within that context? To what extent is there just an ongoing struggle of I need more money or I can't give you more money, you know, in, in your wage packet, that kind of stuff? Or does it take on a larger scale of organized workers or for that matter, in the past, mobilized peasants? Th those are the kind of things to me that I would at least start with. And, and I'll just say one other thing so that it's clear to people who wonder if I've left behind all this stuff in my work on Thomas Paine or, for that matter, Roosevelt and the Greatest Generation. And the answer is absolutely not. Okay, absolutely not. I didn't write them as political economies, but mm -hmm. I wrote them with the idea that this whole question of exploitation was at the heart of the matter. And to the and how people mobilized around it or didn't mobilize around it. So anyhow, yeah, uh, this I like that I like that mill quote very much. I think I think that is a really nice uh, vivid. Yeah, that's actually I should apologize. That was Frederick Sturton Weaver. That's his okay. name. Frederick Sturton Weaver. You found it. Yeah. In the, okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, no, that is that is a very good quote, and I, I think that is a really good starting point to sort of give people a, an idea of uh of what we're we're talking about you know that the uh that you know it seems like you know like a marxist theory of history is a theory of how it is that you know different class societies societies in which there's a class of people who are working and, and a class of people who are in some way or another living off of uh you know what they've you know the some of the product that's been created you know by the uh, the people who are working like you just said uh how those work uh, why it is that they come into existence at the time they do, why it is that they go out of existence uh, at, at the time they do when that happens. Uh, and, you know, and, and I think that the, you know, the like so much, like even if you read like uh, capital um, of so much of Marx is, is devoted to arguing that it's, it's not natural, that this, this, this isn't something that should be naturalized or sort of equated with just sort of, you know, work or production or having any kind of economy at all, that these are like specific historical arrangements that come into existence at a specific time in human history. So I, I, I like that very much. Uh, I do want to follow up on the part about reductionism, but first, uh, Adnan, is, is there anything you, you wanted to sort of chime in on about what Harvey just said? Well, just quickly to um, underscore, uh, I think something that I share with uh, Harvey that you can't actually, of course, there's a narrow way of identifying, you know, Marxist history. And, you know, that is really asking about, you know, the way in which um, modes of production have shaped, you know, particular moments and, and, and so on in a sort of narrow sort of way. One, one, mm -hmm. that's how you could define it. But I think you can't really after Marx be a serious historian without being, you know, informed and influenced by the legacies of mm -hmm. Marx. Um, unless you're doing some very rarefied intellectual history that doesn't assume much context other than a conversation of books or doing a certain kind of very narrow political history that looks at individual choices and decisions in a kind of 
I don't know, like the sort of stuff that comes up on presidential histories and things like that so often. Anything else that you do that's serious is in some ways Marxist history in the sense that you don't look at um, forms of culture or social relations uh, um, as abstracted from one another. Like there's not a real way to explain things without seeing the interconnections between phenomenon, uh, you know, in history, socially, culturally, you know, ideology. Maybe we'll get a chance to talk a little bit more mm. about one of the bedeviling kind of issues of base and superstructure mm. that has uh -huh. been posited and constructed out of Marxist uh, uh, sort of historical theory. Um, but I, I, I feel like, Harvey, that if you if you are doing serious history, you're looking to the interconnections, the power relations embedded within, you know, social and material. And that's what I really think historical materialism is, is not abstracting these as separate and outside of the rest of the totality of society. Now, you may not be able to talk about everything all the time, but when you take a phenomenon like, say, you know, Eric Opsbaum did in one of his really great books, uh, Primitive Rebels, you know, studies in archaic forms of social movements in the 19th and 20th centuries, is he's taking a phenomenon that would appear to be a political, you know, um, uh, you know, a political dissent, looking at peasants' revolts or other kinds of rebellions, but then putting it into a fuller social context, not just in political terms, but seeing politics itself as embedded and talking about them as social movements, archaic social mm -hmm. movements. So that's what I think some of the legacies of Marx is in the broadest sense, is that if you're doing modern history and historical analysis, you're doing something that in some ways um, is a legacy of Marxist thought and of Marx's own historical uh, uh, understanding. I, you know, as you said something about uh, ever since Marx, it's hard not, how could one be a historian? And and just have to ask, in fact, I think, you know, and Mills, to go back to Mills, I can't, I haven't talked about Mills in a long time, but Mills said, you know, basically, if I've got my memory right, um, you know, that after after Marx, it's, it's just an ongoing debate with Marx's ghost, mm. okay? Um, and I think he was thinking in particular, say, of, of of Weber, but perhaps Durkheim as well. Now, what I was going to say, though, in response to what you were saying about how could you not be, is that think about the politics of being a Marxist intellectual and the possibility of surviving in the late 19th century and a good part of the 20th century, writing in such a way that, seen, that is evidently the kind of Marxian history that later the British Marxist historians wrote. You, you wouldn't have made it. It just wouldn't have happened. So, I mean, it took a long time for people to perhaps even come out as Marxist historians. And perhaps before that, they would have had to sound like just economic historians. I mean, I, I do wonder about that quite often, to what extent really the, some of the great intellectuals who we would admire, okay, both adopt a, a form of Marxian thought, but at the same time, have to frame it in a way that doesn't make it come across as class struggle analysis, for example. Okay, or whatever. Anyway, so it, that has occurred to me over time. I've not. Yeah. So, so in the uh, what Adnan said just now, you know, he he mentioned 
uh, base superstructure, which I do want to come down, come back to, and um, and Harvey said a couple of things about you know kind of the the intellectual critiques of uh, of you know Marxist theory of history, where people use words like re, you know uh, reductionism and and determinism, and, and I I think there are a couple different things that people can can mean by that, right? One is is about you know, some of the base superstructure stuff that Adnan said, I do want to circle back to that in just a minute, but the, uh, the other one that's, that's maybe worth, and is also uh, implicit in some of what Adnan said about, you know, uh, doing history without doing this and, you know, and, and what are the sort of areas where you might be able to do that. So one question is just kind of like, what's the subject matter of, uh, of uh, historical materialism, you know, which, which is a fancy term for Marxist theory of history, right? In other words, are we, you know what is what is the sort of um, you know the explanation? What what is the thing that's that this is meant to explain? And certainly, uh, if you're like you might think, well, basically, what it's supposed to explain is why uh, why you have one mode of production at one time of history and and uh, at a different one at a different one, right? Why we had you know why we have have capitalism and we used to have feudalism and we don't have feudalism anymore and all that stuff, right? And then, you know, I guess at the other extreme, just to straw man it a little bit, you could think that uh, every single thing that's ever happened is uh, is explainable in in purely economic ways. You you want to know why, uh, you know, you want to know why, um, you know, Matt Gates, you know, didn't support Kevin McCarthy. You want to know why the the plot of the last Marvel movie was the way that it was. You know that 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 will have some sort of explanation for you in terms of uh, forces, relations, of production. Uh, and then, but then, like in between, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of gray there because uh, it's you know you could I think not unreasonably think well okay uh, probably that's too much. Right, like not everything that ever happens uh, is uh, is a result of economic factors, but you know we do maybe want to reasonably explain more than just you know why you have one mode of production at one time in history and you know and et cetera, because it it also seems like you know questions like um, you know I don't know why did uh, you know why did the English Civil War happen or you know something like that right like those those seem to be exactly the kinds of questions that this sort of analysis should be able to tell you something about. So, uh, you know, either one of you, if you wanted to, to jump in on, on that sort of like, like how, how wide is the scope of what we're trying to explain when we think about history this way? Well, I mean, to get, for example, I think I still, I never forget Mike Kazin once said to me, so are you still a Marxist? And I said, well, I guess, I mean, my way of thinking has not changed. So to give you an example, I mean, after all these years of working on more sort of on American stuff, um, how how does one possibly understand the last 45 years and where we are at this moment without seeing the degree to which these last 45 years just have, have really have been marked by a real class war? I mean, it, it, I can't conceive of any other way of understanding the stretch, say, from the '70s through even even Matt Gates and Kevin McCarthy, okay, mm-hmm. without seeing it in the context of this just ongoing class war against the democratic achievements of especially working people in the '30s and in the '60s, even if the gender and color combinations change, 
And so, you know, I mean, it's just, it's like embedded, you mm-hmm. might say. Um, so, I mean, I, I could get down to, you know, to the details. I, for example, um, I don't think there's anything crude in saying that um, the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. you know, when we say that, you know, they're, they're slaves to the donor class or anything like that. Okay, I, I don't necessarily, th- I think that may be a crude way of putting it, I'll be a very crude way of putting it, but it is the case that contemporary politics is so, is so Im- it, that commodities and, and, and profit questions, all of the things are so embedded that we've literally transformed our public services into capitalist enterprises, okay, cost centers and so on. I mean, I, yeah, it's just. It, sorry, I'm. I maybe. No, no, I, I, I got you right. So I, I think like, you know, one way of of thinking about what you just said might just be like, you know, put it really crassly, like, um, you know, vulgar Marxism. Everything is about economics might not be a hundred percent right, but it's kind of ninety five percent right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't go that far because I, I because one of the things that is striking is the degree to which is that the degree. What happens is that people generally then the reductionist thing is when people then reduce particular decisions and behaviors to that. Okay. I mean, and afford no free will. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure you've all been, I mean, I'll, sorry, I go back to my classroom experience all the time. I'll never forget the first time I was in a, in a, in a full-time position over in Minnesota and students basically, they, in the seventies, late seventies, they had so reduced their own imaginations that they couldn't conceive of anything that people didn't do to maximize their own benefits. They could not get out of the idea that people were not operating as selfish beings. Uh, you know, I was, it's fascinating. So that, I mean, and they, another, and that wasn't even economic, that was reducing it to a kind of human nature. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's what they were doing. Well, so that's a great point. Explain to people that, that human nature is socially, Mm. You know, there may be universals, but there's not always the same way of pursuing it. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to point that out. It reminds me a little bit also of um, Marx's uh, statement. Maybe it's in in, um, Communist Manifesto of just um, how, um, you know, men make their own history. They they don't make the conditions, right, in which they make that history. So that's a balancing between a sense that uh, you are agents, you make decisions. Um, There are moral kinds of questions about how to respond to the exploitation that you experience or feel. Um, Political questions, how how to do that, solidarity. So there's a whole range of decisions that people could make but these are always of course constrained by other material conditions and social factors that could be understood very much in terms of economic relations the uh, conditions in which people have you know to um, uh, survive and where they have opportunities to find resource you know so there is a whole lot of framing conditions um, in which that history is going to be made. And I think the other real question or real problem uh, for Marxist-oriented uh, history uh, is explaining how change happens. So you can understand those conditions and you can describe them sometimes in very structural 
terms. But the point is, is that everything does change in various ways. And how do you grasp and understand in what ways it changes? What are the conditions under which more dramatic changes take place? How do new structures get formed? It seems mm. to me this is the kind of big problem or question. Um, and what Harvey was just describing about this kind of class warfare and counter reaction to the gains democratically made in the 30s and 40s, the great, you know, uh, the New Deal, and then, you know, second round, perhaps in the great society, but starting in the 70s, uh, there is... Our friend you know, Pascal Robert called the, the long counter-revolution, you know, the last that, 50 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. That's yeah, right. Well, and, and by the way, I mean, one of the things that was just, I mean, I remember asking myself, well, why? why? Where does this come from, this, this compulsion? I'll use that term. The compulsion on the part of capital to all of a sudden declare war on the democratic achievements of a long arc of, say, the age of, of Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I, I'll never forget reading about this in the 70s into the 80s at some British political, you know, Marxist economists. Where I, I said, look, there was a profit squeeze. There was a profit squeeze. Japanese and German, West German industries had revived in the wake of the war. And now American industry, which had had basically a monopoly in the world, in the Western economy for so long, well, at least for so many years, is now all of a sudden having to compete. And moreover, the American corporate enterprise had actually lost the innovation and, well, the, the the talent for innovation they you know they had they had been they got caught up in their own success okay big cars gas guzzling it was this kind of thing so they so all of a sudden you've got this profit squeeze i'm using automobile industry which was so significant in the american world life at that time and they had to find out and had, had to ask themselves well how the hell are we going to sustain our profits in this competitive environment we're now in and of course, the best thing that what how how do you sustain your profits? You either get more out of your workers, right, or you reduce what you give to your workers. Okay, so in fact, the class war begins now. At the very same time, of course, they're under pressure in the because of that arc of the '30s to the '60s, not only from the liberal government of the '60s, and don't forget all those. Folks who are who are voting on those laws in the '60s were themselves veterans as kids of the New Deal and World mm-hmm. War II. They already they they had expectations. They mm-hmm. were a decidedly progressive, and in contrast to so many other generations, possibly radical generation. And their and their kids, my generation, are now demanding a whole host of other things. So you've got these kinds of pressures. So you get leaders of 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 corporate industries and banks giving speeches, writing memos. You know. We're under siege. Capitalism, democracy cannot cannot continue to coexist this way. By the way, they actually wrote that, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and 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 so they declare war. I mean, they, it was a blatant declaration of war. Of yeah. course, liberals didn't want to believe that was fully happening. You know, even though they themselves were particip- even though they themselves were starting to participate in it. <laughs> okay, and and workers themselves. The much more organized then than they they are today. Okay, their own unions had become more what was called business oriented rather than movement oriented. Okay, that, they clearly were not prepared for that class war. And of course, we're operating in a global economy, 
So if they created problems, well, just as companies had moved from New England to the South, they were then going to move to Mexico, Southeast Asia. In other words, this whole, so in essence, what I'm talking about is this, this, this global dynamic, which is definitely changing the lives at the ground level of American working people. And then, of course, Republicans are, are, are brilliant at harnessing all this, Reagan's new right. And I, I often tell people, you really want to explain what happened in the 70s, why it is that it seemed like working people either didn't show up or showed up to vote for Republicans because their wages, their wages were being literally reduced in terms of the inflation of the day. I mean, seriously speaking, working class Americans have not seen a significant raise, a rise in their in their wages since the early 1970s. We're we're 50 years later, and so so what do they do? Well, Republicans are arguing as you know, the servants, especially the servants of capital, you might say, they want less government, lower taxes, et cetera, et cetera. So they offer to cut taxes. That'll be the way to stimulate growth. It'll put more money into people's pockets, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if you're a worker whose wallet is being emptied of, of, of wages and somebody says to you, we're going to cut taxes, you don't give a shit if the capitalists are going to get millions and you're only going to get hundreds or thousands at very best, you'll take the tax cut. And so you vote, hell yeah, right? And by the way, in 1980, they didn't, everyone didn't go out and vote for Reagan all of a sudden. A lot, I mean, millions of working people just stayed home. They refused to vote because Carter was so abysmal and Reagan offered them really nothing. They could see through the, the bullshit. But there you go. I mean- have the Democrats ever since done anything other than offer the similar kind of argument? No. Yeah. Um, so, so when you think about like the, the seventies, uh, that the transitional period that you're talking about, um, you know, certainly, I mean, look, I, I don't think in the U S we ever came anywhere close to even the level of sort of social democratic reforms that have been achieved in many European countries and and certainly nowhere you know within many miles of the sort of outermost limits of what capitalism can take. But uh, when you did have more um, you know an expanded welfare state, when you did have uh, more militant labor unions, uh, that contributes along with all the rest of those global factors to that profit squeeze that you're talking about and that response. And you know there were places in the world like like uh, you know Sweden. Uh, most, you know, where uh, where you you had accomplished much more, and and you really were kind of getting to those sort of limits of what the the system can uh, can take, which is why by the seventies, you know, the uh, the socialist movement in Sweden was actually talking about, you know, like there's the the minor plan to yeah. sort of slowly transfer ownership of uh, of major businesses to to these funds that would be controlled by workers, which then you know, predictably led to a huge backlash and, you know, they went in the other direction. Um, but, you know, thinking about examples like this kind of gets us back to where we were a few minutes ago about, um, you know, you talk about structures, uh, you know, Adnan, you know, used the word superstructure earlier. Right. So like, so like very roughly, you know, there's this idea uh, in uh, that, you know, like Marx says in 1859, that uh, different societies and, you know, at, at different times, depending on the sort of level of development of the forces of production, um, you know, the capacity of a society to, to make stuff uh, that in some way or another, and there, 
you know, certainly subtleties here we could get into, but, you know, downstream of that is what, um, is, is what form of economic organization you have, uh, that, you know, get, do you have lords and serfs or workers and capitalists or what? And then downstream of that is, uh, what, what Marx calls the, the superstructure, right? Literally like a structure built on another structure. So, so, you know, and, and, and it is part of the theory that I want to I want to think a little bit more about now. So so Adnan, you kind of brought that up originally. Do you want to, do you want to unpack a little bit of like what Marx means by that and what kind of debates people have about it? Well, yeah, obviously this is a really complicated you know mm. issue, and so much ink uh, has been spilt. Thankfully, probably no blood, but you know you never know. At least no a lot of ink has been spilt on you know trying to you know, resolve this question of the relationship between productive forces, that base and, you know, ideological and cultural mm-hmm. uh, kinds of phenomenon, um, which are identified with this uh, superstructure. And, you know, typically, uh, I guess, well, first, the first insight that mm-hmm. I think is so profound and important in Marx, when you read even his early, uh, you know, pre-capital, early Marx, German ideology and some of these, uh, you know, early works is that he really grasps something very important that it's not. And this is, of course, the turn to materialism is that it's not that the ideas necessarily transhistorically develop, um, you know, and then produce history and change people's consciousness and you know then affect the material conditions of the uh, of society and and economy and so on but rather that in many ways uh these ideas philosophy religion other cultural forms and ideology are patterned or at least responsive in some sense and reflect the social and economic conditions of society in which they are generated, right? And mm-hmm. also that the reception, I think he really has a sense of the reception of certain ideas circulating and becoming dominant um, is partly because the conditions are appropriate for this to make sense in the world that people are living. And so uh, that suggests, uh, you know, that there is some dependence, that the intellectual, uh, cultural, the ideological is somehow flowing from these underlying conditions. Now, some people have interpreted this as a very close connection, and others have pointed out that, in fact, actually, for the, uh, uh, you know, functioning in some ways of uh, a certain mode of production for exploitation uh, the kinds of themes and issues Harvey was talking about in class struggle, in order for these to, uh, you know, maintain some kind of continuity and, uh, you know, and and um, actually manage a form of uh, production, the ideological actually plays a major role in uh, kind of conditioning the culture. And so that it's not just a one-way movement where mm-hmm. culture just follows from, you know, these productive forms, but in, the, in fact, actually, culture and ideology and ideas have to develop and do develop in various ways and become dominant when they accord with these uh, and align with these these uh, kinds of conditions. And so that's why 
you know, if we want to come more to the present, and I hope uh, following up on Harvey's point about the kind of what some people would call the neoliberal era or basically the dismantling of the mm-hmm. you know welfare state and the form of society and economy that developed in the in the 30s and 40s is that you can see very easily that there is also a shift and change in approaches to history this is the period of the cultural turn this is the period where anthropology becomes really important. Semiotic and cultural criticism becomes really important for people who are doing what's called the new cultural history. And there's certain turns away from the social history of the British Marxist historians. Although I think, you know, and Harvey can jump in. They're very complex. They're not so, you know, there's still sure. so much to gain from but, their but there, there is. culture. And, and I do want to I do want to jump to Harvey on that in a second, but I I, I do want to just like because something you just said is really interesting to me. Like I don't know if you read the uh, Vivek Chipper's new book, the uh, Class Matrix, it's called. But you know something he talks yeah. about at, at the uh, at the beginning of that is that you know there is this sort of something there is a certain kind of like really strange irony about the the timing of this cultural turn that goes along with something Harvey said earlier that like. <laughs> You know, you sort of have all this theory that says that well, there there really isn't such a thing as like a you know as as a economic structure that we could talk about you know separately from the these sort of very fine grained particularities of culture um, that uh, that you know it's it's the or that's like separate from it or has this sort of you know causal you know influence on it in the way that you know that like sort of old line Marxists would think and all that theory is happening at a very time when this kind of, you know, neoliberal counter-revolution is, is sweeping the world and imposing, uh, and imposing this, this very raw version of capitalist <laughs> economic structures on the world. Right. I mean, like in other words, it, it seems like there's events that are actually happening in history are, you know, do seem to be showing that they, that, uh, that there are in fact, like, you know, cause all over the world with very different cultures, et cetera, you know, like you, you're, you're getting, the uh, the same uh, the same kind of neoliberal economic push, right? You know, you're getting the same push. But what's interesting, and this is related, I think, to the cultural turn. Like you know, if like if if uh, W. E. B. Du Bois was writing, um, you know, uh, in the later 20th century and about the 20 uh, late 20th and early 21st century, he would say that the problem of this era is the culture line. Right. Rather than like, you know, the, the the color line, right, where, you know, race was uh, predominant um, in geopolitical because of the era of, you know, colonialism globally. He would mm-hmm. say that it was the problem of the culture line because so much of class analysis and race analysis got moved into uh, cultural analysis and differentiation of cultures. So even though the neoliberal process is is you know, globalizing the way in which it does. And this was, I think, an an interesting insight of um, Hart and Negri in uh, Empire and Multitude, which was that this era of capitalism has transformed itself to actually make use of, in terms of marketing and appealing to these narrow, specific cultural identities and 
this can be everything. You know, it can be I'm a rebel and so I'm countercultural and I'm non-corporatist. Or it can be, you know, marketing and, and, and maximizing, uh, you know, in the way that, for example, Islamic finance. Okay, this is a form of globalizing neoliberal forms of banking and finance. However, it has to be done in certain specific rules to appeal to Muslims to fit Islamic legal considerations. So it's Mm. mortgages and it's interest, but just not by that same name. And it's, you know, more complicated interest. It's interest, but it has to be, you know, run through you know, some other cultural paradigm in order to reach these markets and this huge business. So you're right that it's globalizing the neoliberal paradigm, but part of the way it works was exploiting this retreat from any kind of collective, common, or class, and you know, objective materialist analysis to some of these cultural sorts of forms as part of the way in which capitalism was adapting and moving. Yeah. Uh, there's certainly stuff I want to follow up on, but Harvey, do you want to uh, chime in well, on that? Well, first, I want to go back a little bit, and I don't want to get hung up on it, but and mm-hmm. I do enjoy your analyses. But I, I do not see, I don't see how one can imagine even social relations of extraction, surplus extraction, mm-hmm. as something specifically any more or less material than anything else. And I'll, what I mean by that is, how could you possibly have capitalist activity? without law and law doesn't just sit outside in the form of a security officer. Mm. The law is literally defining and ra- I'm not defining rationalizing sort of what's going on inside the workplace. Okay. Everything, so, you know, so, so in other words, the very activity that's first. Yeah. Second, yep. mm-hmm. second, there was a really interesting set of studies. This boy, I won't remember the titles. This goes back probably, let me think, maybe late 80s, early 90s in American history, having to do with the second industrial revolution and beyond. And one of the, and one of the things that these historians were working on was to what degree um, the, the struggles of the workplace were actually defining the kinds of technologies that were being adapted in the workplace. As as a as a way there therefore of de well de skilling workers removing the power that is in the hands of the workers and their foremen say yeah. and embedding it in something which didn't even exist until the late nineteenth century management and am I wrong I don't know Italian but I remember reading somewhere in a Dickens novel that to manage means actually to break horses or something like that. Oh. Have you ever? I, I don't know this. Know. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean the the first thing you said about the law, right? I mean, so so when Marx uh, uses this term superstructure in, in uh, eighteen fifty nine, uh, you know the the phrase he uses is you know like a like a society with given form class relations throws up a legal and political superstructure. He's talking about what the laws are, you know, what the political institutions are, uh, which. Presumably, uh, the idea, I mean, that the reason that a, an economic structure needs a legal and political superstructure is to, you know, same reason you might build, like literally build one structure on top of another to, to stabilize it, you know, to, uh, to, mm-hmm. um, to, to like keep it going, you know, the, the way, the way that it's going. Well, in that uh, case, the superstructure is the base. 
Well, they have a uh, what you just said. Yeah, so so maybe right. So the the question. So this is like a traditional challenge to to Marx's formulation there, which is uh, like like Plekhanov talks about this. I don't think he has a great solution. I think there are other people. Uh, I think you know Gia Cohen talks about this. I, I like what he says about it more, but like the uh, that is saying, okay, well, hold on. Uh, how can it be that there's a base and there's like a superstructure that like results from this base if what the base is is a set of economic relations well aren't we ultimately talking about property relations and is it property uh, a legal concept right i mean i think that's that's roughly right. what you're you're talking about uh so you know like if you if you read that um uh the the cohen book uh you just mentioned uh the uh the uh, Karl Marx's uh, Karl Marx's theory of history yeah. uh, that uh, in um, yeah that's the that's the one uh, well, in there it's been a long time since I read that wow <laughs> yeah well it's a it's a good book uh, but in there you know he he he's you know kind of has this idea that well uh, what we're really talking about we talk about economic structure relations of effective control which usually line up with what the law says, but not necessarily, not always uh, that, you know, sometimes like, you know, thinking about the transition from feudalism to capitalism, that you had a, like the guild system, there were rules about like how many apprentices you could have, you know, to a master, the, you know, the guild, which basically made anything like a factory impossible. And it, it worked a little bit different in different countries, but in some cases, just as the efficiency advantages of like having factories became obvious, you sort of had mass flouting of the law, on the ground before the law was, uh, was, was gotten rid of or changed. Uh, so, but, but then like, there's another issue, which I think a lot of what Adnan says, uh, said earlier gets into, which is about not like a legal and political superstructure, but about ideology that, um, there's, in other words, um, that Marx also says in that same that same passage, that 1859 preface, that uh, social being determines social consciousness, which is a you know very evocative turn of phrase. What exactly it means, you know, is uh, is is a tricky question. But like, there is this idea that like in some way or another, what Adad said earlier, I, how ideas are received at any given time in history, you know, is uh, is in some way uh in some way is downstream of of economic structures that you know the uh, uh ideas the railing ideas or the rooting you know the ideas of the ruling class mm-hmm. and um and certainly like you know i mean it's something that makes the kind of cultural analysis that Adnan is talking about and the uh uh and um like you think, okay, well, if a materialist theory of history is as opposed to anything, it's as opposed to an idealist theory of history, a, a, a theory of history according to which ideas are the sort of primary things that explain, you know, explain what happened. Uh, but, you know, it would obviously be silly to say that, like, idea, like nothing ever happens as a result of ideas in people's heads because, you know, I mean, yes, it does, right? I mean, like, it could be more serious than that. <laughs> but... Uh, but you know, it it seems like if you know you're talking about anything that would recognizably be a form of historical materialism, on some level, you you, you think that even if it's not deterministic exactly, that there's like, you know, you know, you know, you want to leave room for free will and people being influenced by ideas because all that stuff clearly happens. But like that, on some level, there's some kind of primacy 
to 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 material factors. So, um, sorry if I can just yeah yeah please please. So so think about it this way. First of all, the ruling the ruling was it the ruling the I the the ruling ideas are the ideas of the ruling class, right? And that's true, but they're not the only ideas that are out there at any given time. And in fact, the ruling class has to put out a hell of a lot of effort to try to to get them to be the ruling ideas and to sustain them. I mean, I'm thinking right now, if you you know, I'm working on this piece on Roosevelt, where I'm actually going to argue that he's far more of a radical than, than we on the left have appreciated. Anyhow, he's, he's, he's born into the Gilded Age, this late 19th century age of of the robber barons and, you know, the vast majority of American working people farming and, 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 ur- and urban industrial are living in, in poverty or next door to it. And the, clearly the dominant ideology is that of free, free individualism, free markets and social Darwinism. Okay. And this is, in, and this is as a way of bolstering this truly abysmal social order. But it's also the case that at the very same time, populism is emerging, farmers' movements, unions, socialism, the anarchists, right? And those, right, in part because of immigration, but very much also homespun stuff by the, you know, Midwestern uh, farming families who themselves have read the Declaration of Independence. They, They know this stuff from their schooling. So in many ways, I mean, we would be, and I'm sure the three of us would don't have any trouble understanding this, but it is the case that even those kinds of struggles themselves, which are all are really about everything from exploitation to property, you know, and property relations, so on, they're they're all at the same time subject to these ongoing struggles. So we so how does one make the ruling ideas? How does one how does the ruling class make its own ideas the ruling ideas? Well, in part. They hire people to beat the shit out of the people who won't buy into it if worse comes to worse, right? I mean, I know that's a crude way of putting it, but oh yeah, but I, I mean, you know, look, that's what you know. You get I mean, there, is, there is some of that, right? I mean, like, you, get, you can get the national guards, you can get the Pinkertons. I mean, it's it's all part of that, but it's clearly the case that the ruling ideas of the late nineteenth century were the ideas of the ruling class. Yeah, I mean, right, and and you know, so that's like an extreme idea you know, version, but I mean, like that—that's certainly one of the mechanisms. I mean, even in even in like gentler forms than that. Uh, and, um, you know, you were talking about like academic thinkers who didn't call themselves Marxists, but, you know, but seem to be influenced by a lot of Marxist ideas and, and so on. Right. I mean, it's, it's not like, um, you know, I mean, if you think about the cold war and, uh, and the way that that played out in, uh, in academia, you know, I mean, that there, yeah. there is, you know, I mean, like it's not Pinkerton's uh, with, with, with clubs, but I mean, there is sort of, there's a certain level of just direct exclusion, you know, that, that, that went on. Of, of and by the way, and by the way, in, in the seventies, to go back to that period, there began a real war on humanities and social sciences. And it, it wasn't a red scare thing. Although William Simon, who was the treasury secretary under Nixon actually did go out around the country calling for action against the 10,000 Marxists who had taken over higher education. That didn't work in itself, but basically speaking, this this whole whole propaganda machine got going about the fact that you don't really you don't want to get an English degree, a history, you don't want to get degrees that might make you think about humanity and values and all that. You got to get a business degree. I mean, when I was an undergraduate in the late 60s into the early 70s, the best schools in the country didn't even wouldn't even offer a business degree. It was considered 
crass and and technical. I mean, why would you want to do that, right? I mean, they might offer economics degrees, okay, but you wouldn't have offered business degrees. You know, I'm st- I'm not joking when I say that at all. And then all of a sudden, in every way, we're told students are hearing, well, you're not going to get a job if you don't take business degrees. And then if I, sorry, I'm, if I'm getting carried away, I'm remembering at some point, I remember sitting on an airplane, flying back from Boston, having visited my daughter, this young woman gets on and sits next to me. And I assume she was a student from one of the New England universities. And I asked her and she was in fact a senior at Wesleyan or somewhere, somewhere else. She only has, she's a senior at a university, Right. And I said, what do you want to do after you graduate grad school? And she, when the word grad school came up, I could see the look at her face was, what are you, crazy? She said, I want to be a consultant. <laughs> and I thought, what? I mean, and I actually wanted to say to her, how the fuck do you go out to consult if you haven't done anything? <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, good. Uh, A whole uh, generation wanted to be, who came out of the better, you know, Ivy League type schools. They want to be consultants. Yeah. Um so, uh, so, I, so I did want to uh, take a couple steps back to what we were talking about earlier. We have a question in the chat about the uh, the, the Frankfurt School. Uh, Adnan, did, were, were you interested in weighing in on that? I, it's such a huge topic, and oh, I yeah. certainly, um, yeah. uh, far from uh, you know the expert, I'm sure you could probably get half a dozen people in here from your network who know more about the Frankfurt School. I, I mean, I think it's obviously very interesting as a reinterpretation in the vein and in the tradition of Marxist uh, thought to try and explain new realities, obviously to confront uh, the real conditions of fascism and the fact that, you know, uh, certain kinds of expected uh, revolutionary politics didn't, you know, achieve Not success. Not to mention the fact that millions of workers went into the fields of, uh, you know, of whatever they call it in Europe and killed each other. That's right. Yeah. In World War One, World War One. Yeah. And so, you know, obviously, um, I mean, I think it's interesting because I'm I'm unlike a philosopher, and maybe, you know, I think I've got backup here in in, in Harvey, uh, so I can <laughs> kind of say this. Uh we can double team you here, uh, perhaps, Ben. Um is is that um I really do take up that idea that. ideas and theory has its history and its relevance to the time in which it is developed and Mm -hmm. the time and in which it is received and interpreted and commented upon as an influential kind of mode of thought and and i so i definitely see it as something emerging from the cataclysms of european history during that time um and um you know think that it just throw it and to sidebar um, I have to confess, I mean, in spite of my being a historian, I confessed to a fascination for years, which I think has really helped me understand history all the more for for, for most of the Marxist theorists we, we would likely mention, but especially in my case, Antonio Gramsci. I yeah. found him just utterly insightful and, uh, and, and not just in terms of enabling one to understand history, but maybe to to have a better sense as to one's role and possibilities and impossibilities as an intellectual. I mean, and by the way, I rarely call myself an intellectual, but there I did it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. And I think you're right. I mean, we were talking about, you know, the Frankfurt School, but like you, I would be more 
I would find more of value to me as a historical thinker in Gramsci and these ideas of hegemony and trying in that particular way of trying to resolve the base superstructure, you know, kind of relations, what is ideology. I find Gramsci just really, really compelling. Yeah. Uh, but I do think that is one of the great contributions of, you know, in different ways of, of the Frankfurt School is that they were, you know, you can't have like somebody like a Frederick Jameson who, you know, has a theory of literature and postmodernism that is so sophisticated and rooted in materialist understandings of history it, without, you know, the work of, of, of the Frankfurt School, I think, you know, yeah, without Georg right. Lukács and these these sorts of people. So... Yeah, a lot of times these discussions, you know, um, are who do we think is right? You know, mm. I never think that you could ever really determine. You might learn something interesting yes, uh, from somebody who you would disagree with or think they took, you know, their theoretical approach or their historical analysis down the wrong path. You might nonetheless really gain something from them. Um, so when it's like a case of, you know, usually in left circles, what do you think of the Frankfurt School is like a question of, do you agree with them? And are you in that camp or are you not? And I don't take a very sectarian approach to particularly to theory. And I think maybe that's a privilege for historians is that we can always mm -hmm. say, well, look, we got to look at what happened and analyze mm -hmm. that from the evidence. And, you know, if theory emerges or helps us clarify something great, we'll use it. But we don't have to take a position on the theory on theoretical or philosophical yeah, grounds. Yeah. yeah. And I, th I think I've mentioned to both of you in obviously on separate occasions, since it's the first time the three of us are together, that one of the reasons that I actually left the discipline of history officially after my undergraduate degree was my frustration that historians would not talk about theory as a, as a way of better making sense of the world. And so I moved into social science, but I discovered social science was equally empty of the most at that moment of what I considered to be the, the, the when I finally was introduced to it, the most compelling ideas and arguments. And that was inside the, the Marxist tradition. And by the way, there's, there are those in the Marxist tradition who I found myself antagonized by. And, sure. and but, but by the way, if, in case anybody who's an undergraduate is listening, it often pays to read the folks you don't like because it does show. I mean, Ben makes a living, basically. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, Ben makes a living from argument. And well, we all do in a way, but Ben has become the argument, you know. And, and it's striking that you've got to sharpen your wits by taking on these, these other folks who may have gone down the wrong path. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot to to say about everything you guys uh, have, uh, have 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 just said, and you know, and I think the um, the sort of um, you know Gramsci kind of view about um, about you know how to think about um, you know these the sort of problems in classical you know Marxist thought, you know, like 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 why don't things play out? You know, the uh, the the way that we sometimes think they will versus the sort of you know I mentioned Vivek Chib earlier, like that kind of approach. Uh, but as you say, Harvey, uh, this is the first time the three of us have been together in a conversation. I really hope it's not the last time. And I hope I that too. I really, it was great to see you guys and talk with you. It, it's a real pleasure. So much fun. Yeah. Let's, let's do this again in like a month or two. I think that'd be a lot. I think that'd sure, be really I, Absolutely. Absolutely. And right. seriously, on a very, on a very friendly basis, 
It is always good to see the both of you. And can I ask a question? Sure. Uh, sort of somebody, I don't know what if, how it came up. I saw Feldo's name came up over here. Is da I know da Davis, what's he doing with the show? I've, I've talked to him a few times, but it changes day to day what he's thinking. Does anyone know? Oh, David, David Feldman? Yeah. Uh, I haven't, uh, I, you know, I moved recently. I have been, uh, I've been fairly busy and I haven't heard from him in a minute. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. But, yeah, because um, when I was going to go to New York before the holidays, which ended up being a very short lived experience because of somebody getting COVID, I, he and I were planning possibly in getting together. And then it's, and then he said, well, you know what? I've got all this new technology. Maybe I'll, I'll do the show for the first time again on that Thursday night. I said, well, then, then we can't see each other. I, I understand. And then I never heard another word. I haven't heard a word from him in in weeks. Other well, than if I send him a, a good dirty joke, he'll respond. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, well, as, you should, <laughs> I don't know who you're thinking for your you know uh, event and uh, oh, yeah, yeah. you're looking well, for a comedian. He might be a candidate. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think he's reviving the show slowly after that, technological that well, and I, I hope, exhaustion. Uh, I, yeah. yeah, well, I hope so. Uh, I hope, uh, I hope, I hope it is being revived soon. But, uh, but meanwhile, uh, thank both of you guys again. Uh, thank you. This is fantastic. Uh, so uh, that uh, was Harvey JK uh, and uh, Adnan Hussein. I'll be talking to both of them again uh, very soon in the post game, which we're you know going to be going to in the next 20 minutes or so, uh, going to be talking to Matt McManus about, um, about Curtis Yarvin, uh, who he has been researching uh, about, um, uh, about Ben Shapiro and his, uh, his amazing formula uh, for, uh, for, for understanding uh, political legitimacy, which uh, Jake, do we, do we have that again? I, I just want people to be able to, to gaze on it and uh and, and see it uh see it in its full glory uh but yeah there, there we go um you know like all these things like the l stands for legitimacy and it's uh, uh r is regulation it's uh i, I think uh it, it, it's something else but uh but anyway uh we will hear all about that in the post game uh with uh with matt uh, meanwhile, though, um, yep. Welcome back. Uh, welcome back onto the screen, uh, Jake. Uh, and, uh, by the way, I should say, I believe Adnan is also joining us for the post game. Uh, so, so I, I think he will be, uh, he'll be back then. Uh, I forgot to say that earlier, but, uh, first there are a couple of other things that have been going on in the world, in my world in media, uh, you know, that, that I did want to, uh, what did want to talk about, uh, for, uh, for a few minutes, uh, before we end the main show. So, uh, one of these, uh, happened, uh, last Tuesday. Uh, so I've been trying to do the Colin show every day when at all possible at, uh, it was not possible today, uh, but, uh, every day when at all possible at, uh, for, uh, West coast test Tuesday had to, uh, had to do it, um, uh, early in the morning in my time zone, uh, because, uh, to, to accommodate, uh, uh, to accommodate, uh, uh, Glenn Greenwald calling in from, uh, from Brazil, uh, because there had been this, uh, this, this interaction, this interchange between, um, between Glenn and, uh, our, our good friend, my past co-author, uh, guest on the show many times, uh, Branko Marchetich, who's a staff writer for Jacobin because Glenn had made some claims about what he called the, um, 
the Bernie AOC left and how he thinks that the Bernie AOC left uh, doesn't really sort of criticize or take on in the right way the national security state and, you know, and, and his, and his, uh, uh, and, you know, particularly his interest in foreign policy, Ukraine, et cetera. Uh, and Bronco essentially said, what the hell are you talking about? Uh, the, uh, like Jacobin, which is like the leading magazine of, of, you know, anything you could call like a Bernie left, uh, you know, institutionally in America is constantly, talking about the national security state and, and, and calling for de-escalation of Ukraine and, and criticizing U.S. imperialism and, you know, uh, and uh, criticizing, you know, funding for, uh, you know, for, for Israel's repression of the Palestinians and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so they went back and forth about this on Twitter for a while with, you know, Glenn kind of saying, well, that doesn't, um, you know, Jacobin's too marginal to, to really count and sort of sounded at one point, like he was talking about the politicians and said, okay, but you're talking about a movement aspect, you know, what's the, what's the point of comparison here, right? Uh, that, uh, you know, if you're going to talk about, you know, especially if you're going to claim as Glenn seems to want to, that uh, the, you know, that the sort of mega populist right actually is, you know, taking on the national security state and, you know, us war machine in some way, like, like, you know, most of these guys vote for military budgets all the time. You know, what are you talking about? So that was, that was roughly the exchange. Uh, when it happened, I was, um, you know, I kind of live up on a hill right now. Uh, and so I've, I've, you know, I was taking my dog on a really long walk and I just checked my phone every once in a while. I wasn't actually participating, but I was feeling very Zen that day. And so I was like, Hey, uh, you guys want to come talk it out on my show? I, I, you know, I'm not going to pretend to be neutral about this. I definitely have opinions, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm on team Bronco, but, you know, I think I could host a reasonable conversation about this. So I want to play you guys just a couple of clips from this. Uh, so again, the, the guy with the New Zealand accent is Bronco. Um, uh, you know what I sound like other guys, Glenn Greenwald. So let's, let's listen to just a few minutes of this. The idea that, you know, Ukraine is the only litmus test for whether someone's anti-war and anti-imperialist, uh, I think is not really... It's a very shallow way to think about um, uh, uh, foreign policy and, and, and politics. Yeah, I, I mean, just to be clear, get back just quickly on this foreign yep, policy. Please. I totally agree. I mean, I, I think Ukraine is the most important issue. It's an actual war, very dangerous one. The U.S. is directly involved in it in every way except sending battalions of its soldiers. Um, so, but I think it's 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 the test far and away. I absolutely agree. There are critical foreign policy questions, but like. Come on. I mean, there's no, you know, I, 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 I reported on the, the coup in Bolivia from the very beginning. I, I was one of the very first people to interview Evo Morales when he went to Mexico City. I flew to Mexico City and interviewed him. I was reporting on, and you, no one's going to tell me that there was any meaningful voices being raised in the squad or by Bernie about any of that. And, you know, Venezuela is the perfect case. I mean, one of the most pathetic and ridiculous policies that the U.S. national security state enacted totally on a bipartisan basis was this preposterous farce about recognizing Juan Guaido as the official president or the legitimate president of Venezuela. And when AOC was asked about it in an interview with Telesor, she refused to give her opinion. And she said, quote, I follow, what was the, what was the, uh, the, the exact quote? It was, I defer to caucus leadership on how we navigate this. And of course, caucus leadership was right on board with Trump and Mike Pompeo 
In fact, Nancy Pelosi was the first to get up and cheer for Juan Guaido when Trump, you know, welcomed him to the Senate as the the as the the president of Venezuela. So, I mean, yes, they they are better mildly on Palestinian issues, though even there, you know, what amounts to like AOC voting no on on Iron Dome and then changing her vote to present and then crying about it out of some obligation to her Jewish constituents. There's no and there's just no Chomsky voices among any of these people in any meaningful way. And when even when they utter something relatively good, then you know it's done in the most like cursory, inconsequential way. There's no real movement behind it. There's no real force behind it. Um, and oftentimes it's even worse. I mean, AOC on Israel and the occupation, and AOC on Venezuela and Latin America has been, I mean, like affirmatively bad. You know, and given her you know, heritage and, and her, you know, focus that she claimed originally when she was running. I mean, one of the first things that caught my attention of AOC and the reason I, one of the reasons I supported her, she went and tweeted something about how what's going on in Israel and Gaza is such a grave human rights abuse that she refuses to let Democrats off the hook any longer and their support for Israel. And all of those kind of statements disappeared soon as she got to Washington. We haven't heard anything like from, from her like that in forever. So I I'm, I agree. There's I don't think Republicans are better on every foreign policy issue. But let me just quickly conclude with this fast story, which is you guys probably remember last year there was this outbreak, let's call it, of protests, anti-government protests in Cuba, and of course every politician and both parties stood up and started saying solidarity with the anti-Castro protesters and we have to stand on the side of the protesters bills to give them free internet and give them money. Of course, it was partially, it was far from organic. And that night I went on to Tucker Carlson's show and, you know, he is the most watched and most influential conservative commentator in the country, bar none. And he brought up, it wasn't even what I was there to talk about, why is it that idiot Republicans are spending their time on the Hill worrying about the internal affairs of Cuba and trying to intervene in Cuba when we have our own problems to deal with. And that's a major part of what I try and do in Republican politics is to say, Trump ran on a platform of staying out of people's affairs, America first, this non-interventionist policy. So why should we be sanctioning Venezuela when it hurts Americans and, 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 and our own interests? Why should we be intervening in Cuba? What role is it of ours to overthrow the government of Cuba and there is now more movement, I think, on the American right than, again, in the mainstream left, where you almost never hear that sort of stuff from anyone except occasionally Ilhan Omar. So, I mean, so I'm, I, not, I'm curious. I just wish there would be more, of, more that. of that. Well, hold on. I mean, so this is what happens. You, you've, you've taken a bunch of stuff AOC has said. And again, people, lots of people on the left have cr- critiques of AOC. And then you say at the end, oh, well, you know, aside from Ilhan Omar, I mean, well, why don't we, we could just as easily fix out Illinois. I mean, Illinois condemned U.S. policy in Venezuela. By the way, Sanders did condemn uh, and, and was the only one who called a coup in Bolivia. So I'm not, I'm not sure what, what you're saying, that he wasn't a, that he was silent on that. I mean, you know, uh, you, I'm not going to go through every single squad member now and go through their entire history and see what uh, good stuff and bad stuff they've said. But I mean, you know, we can we can pick and choose what we want to, to make any point we want. The, the point that we were making that, that we were actually talking about in the first place was not even about the squad. It was about the fact that, again, the vote in Ukraine, sure, uh, uh, that's, you know, an important indicator of something, but it's not the only uh, foreign policy issue. And I mean, you know, a lot of these same people are pushing for war with China. I wish actually I would hear more pushback on the right or people with uh, conservative audiences such as yourself 
about the disastrous push, and, and which is bipartisan, you know, both Trump and all right, uh, let's uh, let's let's pause there uh, for uh, for a minute. Um, so I think this gives you a pretty good uh, a pretty good flavor of uh, of of what all this is is like. I'm not going to editorialize too much uh, about you know some of my own takes about this. I will I will say, uh, well, actually, I will say I'll, I will say one conciliatory thing first, which is that if you saw if you saw me kind of like, you know, wanly smile for a second uh, while I was listening to all that is because there was a point where you could hear all, all of Glenn's dogs barking in the background. And, um, and that makes me kind of nostalgic. A uh, guy has a zillion dogs and I can remember being um, on in studio on the Michael Brooks show uh, while he, you know, I was sitting on the couch, uh, you know, waiting for my turn. Well, uh, Michael is interviewing Glenn in Brazil and, uh, and, and I, I can just remember as the call started, you know, like, like, you know, sounded like there are like a hundred dogs barking in the, uh, in the background. Uh, but, um, look, I, uh, I think this idea that there's a sort of, you know, I, I, I'm a little frustrated by like sort of giving Tucker Carlson credit for not wanting to invade Cuba, uh, which seems like a very generous curve to, uh, to grade him on. Uh, when, you know, other figures, left-wing figures seem to me to be graded on a, you know, much less generous curve and, you know, and, and like, you know, if, uh, AOC says, and I think this is a stupid thing for her to say, you know, she's going to defer to, to, to caucus leadership. Uh, it's like, okay, let's kind of, so it's like, all right, so she's sort of saying, you know, pass, right. This is essentially what she said, right. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna express an opinion on this one about the Juan Guaido thing, which yes, it's a bad thing to say, but it's like, no, come on. I mean, Tucker Carlson says like just vile things, um, you know, a hundred times an hour. Like, 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 like he said, he wants, you know, he doesn't like the feminization of the military because he, you know, he wants the military to be full or no, his guest said this, but he was nodding. It's like, yeah, that's right. You know, uh, they wants he wants, uh, he wants guys in the military who dream of sitting on a throne of Chinese skulls. That was a, that was a quote. And we watched his, uh, documentary about, right. Or I don't even know if he called it a documentary, but about like the threat of the rise of China. Right. Um, like we watched some of that on the show even, um, where he seems to be pro rationing up tensions there wouldn't you say yeah no i would say so uh so okay so let, let's get to the second part uh we were gonna we we're gonna play his focus on these issues i mean a, a, a jacobin i and others have written about not only ukraine stuff and and, and, and the in, insane approach to russia but also what is happening uh uh in pushing the u.s towards war, war with china which is not just hawkish rhetoric i mean uh, uh congress has been voting for uh, piling in uh, more and more weapons into the country. It's been voting for uh, basically uh, slashing and getting rid of the, 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 you know, the policy of strategic ambiguity and the one China policy, um, which is all, you know, factoring into, into Chinese leadership's uh, decision-making around, you know, do we invade Taiwan now or later or do we, you know, do we not invade at all? So, you know, I, the left, I don't think the left really needs to be pushed on this, um, but I think it is important for people to know the left is is uh, actively uh, involved in these fights. Um, I, I think uh, I agree with what you said about the you know the the, the constituency and, and, and conservative circles around you know more of an anti-war, at least a non-interventionist policy. I think actually 
the Obama and Trump examples are, are both actually really important for this because what they show, and, and polls bear this out, they've shown this for years, is that the American public, um, liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, independent, whatever, uh, consistently favors a far more measured and restrained foreign policy um, than, than the, uh, the, the political elite in the country uh, carry out. Uh, it, it largely, you know, the reason why you get this very out of control, I think, um, uh, national security state and, and you know, you know, the, the blob and all that is because uh, democracy in the United States has been, you know, basically uh, uh, eviscerated over, over decades, you know, with, with really money rules, everything, not just, uh, you know, in, in both parties. Uh, and, and what you end up getting is that, that, there's no real democratic accountability to, to what's going on in Congress, and especially with foreign policy, which is never really a top of mind for people anyway, but it allows people uh, in power to basically get away with whatever they want, along with the, you know, the various undemocratic institutions that exist to allow them to do that. Um, just one more point. You know, I think we've been talking a lot about how Trump, you know, ran on all this stuff, which, you know, some of which I, I agreed with, you know, the more anti-war stance, the kind of uh, flirtation with rejecting Reaganism, all of that was, was good. And then, of course, once he was in, uh, in, in office, he governed like a very regular Republican. He wanted to slash social spending. He wanted to throw, uh, you know, poor people basically off, off, uh, off, off the government roles. He wanted to, well, you know, he w nearly went to war with Iran. He was kind of iffy and wishy-washy about actually withdrawing from Afghanistan, so on and so forth, you know, tried to foment coups, uh, stepped up drone bombing. bombing. Etc. Um, now, would we say that because Trump is, you know, the nominal leader of the of the movement of the people that voted for him, that that what he did in office reflects on the the the, the movement behind him or the people who voted for him? That actually that means that that they themselves are, are tainted. Um, I, I don't think. I would take that position, but I think that's some of what we see when we talk about how you know, well, AOC and Bernie are the leaders. Of, of of the socialist left, and so therefore, whatever they do, you know, reflects um, on the on the wider movement. I don't I don't agree with that. I think Trump, AOC, Bernie, all these people, they're politicians. They they are uh, connected to movements, um, some more, some less. But at the end of the day, uh, they're, they're just elected officials. That you know, if you're an activist uh, or just an ordinary voter, you are hoping that you can exert enough pressure on them to actually do what you want. I don't think that they're necessarily, you know, uh, the, the leading lights of, or the be all and end all. I think that's an important. Yeah. All right. Uh, one last one, actually. So if you look at that, uh, that chapter list, uh, there's the, at, uh, 5420, uh, Ben follows up with Glenn, uh, that one, let's just, let's just listen to that. And that'll be the, that'll be the last one. Anybody who wants to check out the rest of it can check it out on Colin. You just want to uh, go back to, you know, uh, to the Cuba example and something that Glenn kind of said in, in passing about, you know, Trump saying that we shouldn't be intervening in, you know, in other people's affairs. Because, of course, Trump, Trump did say a fair amount of stuff like that during the election. Even during the election, he was inconsistent. But, uh, but he did say a fair amount of stuff like that. I mean, I would point out that, you know, not that I would, you know, 
Uh, not that I think the results are comparable, but I mean, you know, George W. Bush, you know, said in 2000 that he wasn't going to do nation building. But uh, but if you look at, you know, what he did in office, uh, you know, I mean, he considerably tightened uh, sanctions on Cuba compared to where they were under Obama. Uh, in uh, in that example, uh, he, you know, I mean, we're talking about the Iron Dome funding where most of the squad voted against it uh, with, with, with a couple of shameful exceptions. Uh, but um, you know, but Trump ostentatiously moved the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem to uh, to you know kind of take you know take the occupied East Jerusalem off the table for for any uh, for any future uh, uh, future peace uh, peace negotiations uh, between uh, between Israel and Palestine. Uh, he you know one of the consistent I mean you know the partisan valence of this completely switched, but like one of the consistent Republican objections yeah. to Obama was that he was too soft on Russia. And uh, and and Trump did send heavy weaponry to Ukraine in ways totally. that you know that, totally. that, that. All right, so I think all that's enough to uh, to give you a flavor. Um, you know, if you know, like, you know, my again, uh, I th- I think it's also enough to give you a sense, some sense of where I come down on this, and and some of my frustration. Uh, you know, with um. You know, with with some of the positions that Glenn has has taken on this, especially on the comparative questions, um, you know, I think you can be, um, I think you can, I think you can have your eyes open about how bad Democrats and liberals are, and how disappointing even more even more left wing politicians can can be sometimes, uh, and still see that. Republicans are worse. Like that just, that just seems obviously true to me that they, uh, that, um, you know, there might be some questions where conjecturally, you know, that if there's like some particular war that, you know, Democrats are more excited about the Republicans, uh, that, you know, that sometimes happens, but like overall, if you look towards the overall sort of postures towards the national security state, towards the military, um, you know, and, and certainly towards, uh, certainly towards all those domestic questions. I mean, you know, that, that, you know, Trump, uh, ran uh, saying that he wasn't gonna, you know, he wasn't gonna mess with entitlements, and then he, uh, and then then he um, he tried to to kick a bunch of people off of uh, off Medicaid, and uh, and you know, make it harder to to get food stamps, and you know, appointed hardcore union busters to the National Labor Relations Board. Like, I don't think it takes anything away from saying that liberals are ten thousand miles away from your political positions. To say also these other guys are eleven or twelve or thirteen thousand miles away from my political positions, and if you don't think you're going to notice the extra couple thousand miles, man, you know you, I've got some news for you. Um, you're going to notice. I don't know if there's anything you wanted to uh, to to chime in on that, but I mean, I, well, yeah. So give you a chance to do that. No, I know I'm 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 in lockstep, and I think it, it it's. With with Tucker, it's just a bit frustrating because I feel like, you know, kind of what you were saying that if if you're to cherry pick certain quotes from certain people, like you know, like when Glenn is like, oh, he said this one, like he agreed that, um, and this was kind of, you know, maybe not even really like the most important issue Tucker talks about, where he's like, why are we commenting on protests in Cuba? Right? I feel like at a certain point, you could probably um, find like one or two positions from people that you generally don't like and try to paint them in a certain way. But if you look at the 
totality of what of what Tucker says and what he usually argues for, it seems hard to me to argue yeah. that he really has this. And look, I wouldn't have the slightest problem with going on the show to like just say left wing things. Um I think that once you start saying, oh, actually, Tucker's not so bad. And, you know, it's like, well, what, what, what's the political standard that Tucker Carlson passes that AOC doesn't, right? Like, that that's kind of what I want to know. Um, but, uh, and I think certainly, you know, whatever's whatever the sort of complexities of Republican politics are on Russia, and even there, I think that, you know, like, look, um, uh, Donald Trump was actually super aggressive uh, in, uh, in in terms of these like this geopolitical confrontations with Russia when when he was he was president. Uh, but you know, like I think given how eager some of these people seem to be to escalate tensions with China, it's like okay, so like now you just want to have World War Three with China, <laughs> you know? Instead of no, 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 Russia's the wrong enemy. You know, we we gotta have you know we uh, you know if we're gonna go to uh, if we're gonna take take the world to the brink, you know, we gotta do it with China. Uh, you know, I I can't get that excited about you know about that flavor of uh, of an anti war message. Let me just put it that way. Uh, but. Uh, one thing I do want to call attention to that you'll notice about that conversation. In fact, I'm sure it's disappointing to some people who are watching because people have like strong, you know, preferences and antipathies about media figures. You know, people enjoy having people they don't like uh, yelled at, you know. And so I think the fact there's not a lot of yelling in that conversation, you know, that it's like, you know, it's kind of calmly, like, you know, it's like I just kind of want to give Bronco a chance to kind of calmly say, hey, here's why this doesn't make sense to me, man. You know, what do you think? You know, and like, kind of have some back and forth about that um, is relevant for the last thing I want to talk about before we go to the post game. I know we're running late, but I think it's worth spending just a minute on and maybe we can follow up next week, uh, which is a interaction that's been happening over the course of the last several days. So people may have been following uh, that last week, there was a lot of drama about the uh, speaker of the house election uh, where Kevin McCarthy, uh, who, eventually ended up winning the speaker election was opposed by yeah yay, yay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah was was opposed by the sort of uh a lot of people in the uh, you know sort of the hardliners within what's called the house freedom caucus used to be called the tea party and, and in fact i would argue that um i would argue that this wing of the republican party is still a lot more like the tea party the people who take Republican populism seriously would like to admit. In fact, it seems like a lot of what those guys want is more budget cuts, um, you know, and, uh, and I think that, you know, and, and I think as George Carlin says, they're coming for your social security, but, um, but a lot of people uh, took the opportunity to sort of revisit a tactical argument that had gone on on the left back in January, 2021, which is about something called force the vote which was the idea that uh, AOC or the squad or possibly the House Progressive Caucus, which is a much larger and more politically mixed uh, entity, you know, than the squad itself, you know, you have a lot of people who are actually pretty moderate in that, should have uh, used the occasion of that Nancy Pelosi speaker election, January 2021, as a, uh, as a chance to you know, that they should have uh, withheld their votes in order to extract from her the concession of her holding a, a floor vote on Medicare for all. That was the that was the idea of force the vote. Sometimes some of its advocates said, oh, and we could also throw in other demands. But realistically, 99.99999% of the discussion was about having a floor vote on Medicare for all. Um, 
So, uh, so for example, uh, Brianna Joy Gray, uh, you wrote a article for Current Affairs, uh, where where she was advocating uh, it was called the case for forcing a floor vote on Medicare for all. Um, and uh, I never bought this. Uh, I don't think it's the most important issue ever. I actually think it's a pretty unimportant uh, tactical question, sort of like should some politicians have tried a parliamentary maneuver two years ago? I think it's probably something not that's not worth you know spending too many minutes on on the show. But you know, my perspective was always that um, what people like Brianna, uh, people like Jimmy Dore, uh, who you know who is like sort of the figure who was most associated with this demand. We're saying didn't really make sense to me. Uh, and I wrote an article for Jacobin where I responded. It was called uh, Jimmy Dore is right about the urgency of Medicare for all, but AOC isn't the problem. And uh, they, the case, you know, the case I make in there is having a floor vote on Medicare for all under these circumstances is going to be completely pointless at best and actually counterproductive at worst. Uh, and what I mean by that is, at the time, right, Democrats had the slimmest of majorities. Now they have the slimmest of minorities, but they had the slimmest of majorities, and about half of them were co-sponsors for Medicare for All. Uh, we had just gone through an election uh, where, like, the Democratic primaries for, like, a year, the main issue in the primaries was Medicare for All. Everybody had taken a position on this. This, like, if you remember any of those primary debates, there was always, like, an hour of arguing about Medicare for All. In each of those uh, each of those primary debates, uh, without exception, and so uh, anybody who wasn't a co-sponsor by January 2021 was no was making no secret whatsoever of their opposition to Medicare for all. So I was think, okay, so you have half of the you know, and look, I'm sure some of the people who were co-sponsors uh, would have you know like gotten weak at the knees if there was ever a chance that Medicare for all would have become a reality. And that like the insurance industry would have taken out their wrath on them if they'd helped make it, you know, make it so, uh, or, or it looked like they were in danger of helping make it so. But uh, even assuming every single co-sponsor held fast, uh, it would have been a three to one defeat with no suspense or drama whatsoever. Because in, uh, you know, 50% of the Democrats in the House were openly opposed to Medicare for all, 100% of the Republicans were. So, and it was about a 50-50 house. So that's a 75% no votes. And so again, there's no drama, there's no suspense, there's 0% chance it wouldn't have failed by at least three to one. Um, so having a floor vote under those circumstances, it seems seemed to me that the best case scenario, the absolute best case scenario would be nobody noticed. It was five minutes on C-SPAN and then it just kind of went into the memory hole. Uh, the worst case scenario is that this would be a cudgel that people would use for years to further marginalize the cause of Medicare for all. It's like, oh, why are you crazy socialists still talking about this? You know, this thing that like, you know, that, that you know, only got a quarter of the votes in the House with a Democratic controlled House. Why don't you move on to insert some god awful centrist, uh, you know, watered down nonsense here? Uh, so, you know, I think it would have been, you know, I mean, if, if it could have at least passed the House, that's a symbolic victory. There's some value in the optics of that. But I think the optics of a massive symbolic defeat are actually pretty bad. That's the case that I made there. Uh, Brianna Joy Gray in the current affairs article, she said things like, well, um, you know, people say it wouldn't get any attention. That it would just be five minutes on C-SPAN, but what if it were combined with the general strike? And I point, you know, 
said, maybe it's a little unkind in the Jacobin article. It's a little bit like saying, what if it were combined with an intergalactic spaceship landing on the, uh, the ceiling of, you know, on the, on the roof of Congress and the aliens demanding Medicare for all. I mean, you might as well say that we haven't even had a citywide general strike in the United States since the 1930s. And we have like a 6.7% private sector unionization rate. Uh, the idea that, you know, between December, which was just when she was saying this in January, you could get together a national general strike doesn't strike me as very in touch with reality. And this idea that people had that it would have flushed out the soft co-sponsors that, People who said they were for Medicare for all would have voted against it, then you could primary them. It also doesn't strike me as in touch with reality because if you know it's going to fail three to one, if you're willing to do a meaningless symbolic um, co-sponsorship, why not do a meaningless symbolic uh, vote for it when you when everybody knows there's no chance of it passing? In fact, if anything, it might have provided extra cover to uh, to you know Democrats who wanted the stolen valor of supporting it uh, when it uh, it didn't matter. There were no consequences. So that was all my view. And look, you can think I'm right about that. You can think I'm wrong about that. That doesn't, you know, I, I think it's a relatively unimportant issue because we're talking about a proposed parliamentary tactic that some backseat drivers said some politicians should have tried two years ago. Uh, I'm not going to be offended if you disagree with me about that. But uh, all of this came up again this last week because uh, the – because uh, these House Freedom Caucus hardliners were getting all of these uh, concessions from McCarthy by withholding their votes from him. And so people like uh, Brian Joy Gray, Jimmy Dore were saying, aha, see, we were right, right? Force the vote. It works, which um, didn't really make a lot of sense to me on a couple levels, uh, mostly because uh, the House Freedom Caucus people weren't asking for any symbolic floor votes on things that had no chance of passing, uh, what they were asking for was stuff like rules changes and committee assignments. Uh, and in fact, if you go back and look at what happened during that force the vote debate, uh, people who, um, uh, people who said, Oh, well, uh, even if they don't ask for Medicare for all, uh, Medicare for all floor vote, it's okay. If they ask for, um, for things like committee assignments, uh, that that's a good enough strategy. We're mocked mercilessly for saying that because what really mattered was a floor vote on Medicare for all. So we we just have a quick uh, clip here uh, that uh, this is uh, Jimmy Dore and Matt Stoller uh, during a discussion about force the vote. Did positively about your campaign because I like that you're you're saying they need to ask for things. And one of the things AOC responded to me and said, actually, you know, we have asked for things and we're, we're not not being public with what we're asking for. But it's it a secret. For- it's a secret what they're asking okay, for. That's, that's real, but it's not. I mean, I know some of the. I mean, AOC is not the lead negotiator. That would be Pramila Jayapal. And like they're they're they are asking for things. But I think, and they're going to they're getting things. They're getting some representation on committees. They're, it's like it's insider. Fuck off. Fuck you. Fuck off. Go fuck yourself with your fucking committee, fuck <laughs> You fucking egghead nerd. I don't give a fuck about your committee shit. Nobody voted for her for a fucking committee. Why don't you stop saying that stupid shit? That's directed at Matt, not at Jayapal. Fucking Matt. I have a point. I have a point here. Yeah, um, you fucking bet you do. It's called a point Dexter. That's a fucking <laughs> stupid thing to say. Yeah. So uh, all of that makes me think that the force the vote push really was about the symbolic floor vote and not about uh, stuff like committee assignments. 
Uh, I'd also point out, in fact, a lot of the demands that the House Freedom Caucus people made, you know, weren't public, et cetera. A lot of the negotiations there was uh, was behind the scenes. Uh, but in any case, so it didn't make any sense to me. But nevertheless, people like uh, Jimmy and Brianna were bringing this back up this last week to say, see, we were right. Um, and as part of that, um, Brianna had tweeted out an article that Jacobin had uh, had just published uh, about the McCarthy fight said, Oh, you know, there are things you can learn from, you know, from the, the way that the house freedom caucus people got what they wanted that the left can use. And Bree says, uh, this is much better than Burgess's don't force the vote piece from two years ago, but it's odd to write a whole article like this. And, uh, not once mentioned that there was a campaign to have the squad fight for this two years ago that the magazine never reportedly, uh, favored, uh, reported favorably on. Um, and then uh, Jimmy himself got in on this. Uh, he responded, you still thinking any of these people are acting in good faith is a mistake. Do you really think these eggheads are dumber than a pothead comedian? Nope, they're just bad liars. They have to bend themselves into moronic anti-logic pretzels on purpose to oppose force the vote. Uh, so uh, in, um, in, in responding to this, uh, you know, I, I'd quote tweeted uh, Jimmy's tweet, you know, I mean, which was much harsher than Brianna's, you know, the moronic pretzels and, and eggheads who were liars and all this stuff. Uh, and, um, and I had, uh, you know, I said uh, that, um, let's see if we can find the, uh, the yeah. I think yeah. Anyway, whatever. We might not have the right one, but, but, you know, in any case, I, I said, uh, I quote tweeted Jimmy and said, Hey, I don't, you know, I don't know why we're talking about a, um, I don't know why we're talking about an article that I wrote two years ago, uh, you know, about a, a, you know, sort of tactical issue about whether, you know, the squad should have tried this particular parliamentary maneuver, uh, in January, 2021. But since you are, uh, if you're going to say I'm a moronic lying egghead, uh, Hey, um, why don't you come on my show and you could explain why you feel this way and, and we could actually talk this out, talk about the the details of this, whether this critique makes sense or not. Uh and um and then I, I said, obviously, same invite goes out to Brianna Joy Gray. She's been ignoring similar invites since late 2020, even as she periodically expresses anger about my old article. But what the hell? Might as well extend it. One more time, there was a bunch more back and forth. Ultimately, she declined uh, the invitation. She said, um, you know, the uh, the record speaks for itself. Your article didn't warrant a response, and you should be thankful. I showed grace in the face of patronizing quips over the years. I'll do you the favor of going back to ignoring you. There's nothing to debate. You're wrong. Uh, and uh, and then um, the uh, uh, Jimmy himself, so that's my response to him. Uh, but anyway, I guess you can see uh, the uh, the original. Um, yeah, there we go. So uh, Jimmy eventually responded to me. This is today. Says you were 100 percent wrong about force the vote. They've been racing over it. So you know, got all of the angry Jimmy fans to yell at me on Twitter, which which proves that he's right. Yet in a desperate attempt to save face, you're pretending there's a debate about. It. There is no debate. You're an unprincipled liar who let his jealousy slash hatred for a pothead comedian get the best of him. Um and. You know, look, there's a lot to uh, you know say about this. This was my response at the time that you you're just pretending to disagree with me because you're jealous is a hell of a thing for a grown man to say. But uh, I want to take a step back, uh, and you know, we're running very late. I want to go to the post game in just a minute. But 
I do want to just take a step back from like the kind of details of this because this is the kind of thing I don't engage with very often at all, right? Like I think um, if you go back and look at the archives of GTAA, there's like one clip that has Jimmy Dore's name in it, you know, in the in the like two and a half years that we've been doing the show. Trust me, it's not because he doesn't say stupid shit all the time that we could talk about uh, if, uh, if, if we wanted to, but uh, I, I'm just not interested in feeding into that. I'm talking about it now because he and Brianna brought it up uh, and uh, and used their large and prominent platforms uh, to uh, to uh, to drag me in this show through the mud and and, and I do want to uh, correct the record about it. That's one reason, but I think there's also another thing. It's like, look, I don't think that media figures, you know, going after media figures. It's one thing if it's Tim Pool or Charlie Kirk or somebody uh, reactionaries whose bad arguments we can kind of use as teachable moments to say things that are important, uh, could do debates with these people and sort of bring sort of basic leftist and socialist ideas to, uh, to their audiences. I'm all for that. But when it's left or left adjacent media figures, you know, just kind of getting mad at each other, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not super interested in doing very much of that at all. Uh, but every once in a while, you know, I think it is worth breaking my fast on that and doing just a little bit because, there is a kind of teachable moment here too, which is this is a really bad way to do radical politics. I mean, to the extent that there even is radical politics, because ultimately you're you're mad that some social democratic politicians didn't try a particular parliamentary maneuver that you thought they should have tried. That's a very inside baseball uh, debate that's sort of within the realm of, of social democratic electoralism, which, you know, Hey, I'm all for social democratic electoralism. I think you got to, you know, crawl before you can walk and ha- and change society in more radical ways, but let's also not, you know, ignore the fact that's ultimately what we're talking about here. But this kind of sort of performatively getting really angry at uh, you know, left-wing politicians who, you know, may sometimes legitimately do disappointing things, who may as Bronco said in the debate with Glenn uh, have to be constantly pressured to do some of the things that, you know, that we want them to do uh, that, you know, that, you know, change is accomplished by movements, you know, not individuals. And we certainly need better structures of accountability for politicians. And there's a, a lot of discussions that adults can have about this, but I don't think this is one of them. Uh, I think that this is just a, a model of sort of doing, doing this all the time. I think you know, it, it's good to kind of gaze into the abyss of it every once in a while, just as a reminder of why we try to do things differently here. And um, before we go to the post game, uh, if um, if Jake, you know, if there's anything else you want to throw in, uh, I will give you uh, will give you a chance to do that. But otherwise, uh, I want to kind of give the uh, the last word here, and we'll we'll play this clip, and then that'll be. That'll be that for the main show tonight uh, to uh, the late Michael Brooks, who uh, who's had a um, uh, four, four years ago and change back in 2018. Uh, he, he had a run in with Jimmy about uh, lesser evil voting and, and issues related to that. And, you know, th- the reason I want to play this is not like, oh, obviously we love Michael around here, uh, you know, but it's not like, oh, he said it, so you have to agree with him or anything. You should think about his analysis and decide whether or not you agree. It's because I think he's saying something really important and he's saying it much better than I could. So I want to give him the last word in this episode. 
let's play the Michael clip and then go to the post game for GTA patrons. Dude, if you want to do politics, you got to fucking understand the issues. It's not all just emotions and fantasy life. Or if you want to do emotions and fantasy life, then own it and just do critique. And that's great. But don't call people who actually care about the process and bother to do some fucking research dummies because they look at things a little bit structurally. It's an easy hustle. It's an easy market. It's an easy game. But it's not contributing to anything. It's not going to help us win.